Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. film American Sniper, based on the true story of Navy SEAL Chris Kyle, the most lethal sniper in U.S. military history. The film is on track to be the number one war film of all time. But now a Muslim civil rights group claims it is leading to death threats against Muslims. The group just sent letters to director Clint Eastwood and star Bradley Cooper, writing in part, quote, a majority of the violent threats we have seen over the past few days are the result of how Arabs and Muslims are depicted in American Sniper. It is our opinion that you could play a significant role in assisting us in alleviating the danger we are facing. Joining me now, Samer Califf, who's president of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Thank you for being here, sir. So how many threats uh, have been reported so far? You, in your letter, you cite two. Well, just um, first of all, thank you for having me here tonight. I do want to clarify one thing. Uh, my organization is an Arab organization. Uh, we're not a Muslim organization. We're secular. In fact, I myself am an Arab, am an Arab Christian. Uh, the, the you call yourself an Arab civil rights organization. Yes, we do. Okay. We do. That's, I just want to clarify sure, that. Go ahead. Um, uh, the, the, the exact numbers I don't have uh, on hand, but we, the, we have noticed a, a tripling of the ones that we usually get. There has been a significant uptick in a, in a lot of this, a lot of these sort of hate-type mail. Some of that happens to be uh, you know, containing uh, threats of violence. Other happens to be just your, 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 your usual hate uh, rhetoric that uh, we usually get from um, Well, when you say it's tripled, I mean, just like give us a feel. Do you normally get you know, three a month? and now you have nine, or are we talking about Oh, no, no, it's, it's, it's much more than that. We usually probably get, I would say, probably about 15 to 20 a, a month, um, and we're probably getting uh, three, four times that right now. Also, this is what we, what we ourselves have noticed. We've asked other people who have noticed these on the Internet to please forward them to us. Mm -hmm. um, okay, but what know, specifically does the movie do, in your view, to negatively portray Muslims and Arabs? Well, let me let me clarify one thing. Um, I personally myself have not seen the movie. Uh, I have. Uh, How can you write that? How can you write that in your letter then? No, no, no. What, what we are getting, because what we're getting is death threats from these people. And these threats are very specific. What they say, just saw the movie American Sniper, and now I want to go kill some, uh, some ragheads. So, so there is that, there is that sort that of the, connection. that the movie has done anything wrong for which the actor or the director need to come out and speak. When people are specifically uh, uh, specifying that they're seeing the movie and, and because they saw the movie they want to go and kill somebody, I think that, that's, that's problematic. But you know we're that there, only are, asking, there are lunatics we're only asking out there. Who, I mean, there are some me? people, there are lunatics out there. There are some people You're who see right. Sean Hannity's tie and want to go commit violence. I mean, right. not, not every lunatic and their, their rhetoric can be controlled. 
you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and we hope that 99.9%, we hope all of these are just a bunch of keyboard people with keyboard courage, just sitting behind a keyboard, typing away. Uh, and that's what we hope all it is. Right. But, but you know what? It only takes one person. One person to go into an Arab uh, church or, or a mosque to start shooting. And that's what we want to prevent. That all we are saying and all we are asking uh, both uh, Mr. Cooper when, and Mr. Uh, is, Eastwood but, but for them to come happen? out and say this is wrong. I mean, when, when does that happen? I mean, we, what, what has also happened recently, and I realize some of these threats, the, the two you post, specifically cite American Sniper, but we've also seen, you know, radical Islamists go murder a dozen people over the Charlie Hebdo um, caricatures in, in France. So it's, you know, the uptick in rhetoric against Muslims in that case could be directly related to something else that has nothing to do with American Sniper. Well, we did see a violent uptick in France about, uh, following that incident. And what we're saying is we don't want that to happen here in this country. So we're trying to be a little bit more proactive. So what we're, all we're asking them to say is, is, look, that's not what we're about. That's not what this country's about. This is wrong. You shouldn't be uh, threatening violence against somebody just because they happen to be of a certain ethnicity or a certain race. Now, now mind you, we've just gotten a, a statement uh, from the, the, the studio Warner Brothers that have condemned these statements, and that's all we're asking uh, for for Mr. Eastwood and Mr. Cooper to do. Or violent uh, threats against anybody. But why? I mean, Bradley Cooper and you, you. Do you agree that Bradley Cooper and Clint Eastwood have done nothing wrong? I'm not. I'm not. We're, we're not. We're not uh, trying to you know say that they, they've done anything wrong. And we're you, just do you agree saying that right the film American that this movie, done nothing wrong? Well, we don't know that. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast. Hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, January 30th, 2015. So I have been told uh, that report came out this week. Uh, the number of threats, uh, not that it's new. I think several other folks have uh, reported the same thing in terms of terroristic comments on uh, social media sites uh, and or direct threats against people who have said, hey, we think uh, that this film, this book uh, is white supremacy propaganda uh, and encourages thinking of non-white people as disposable threats, people that should be killed, people that should be harmed. Uh, Rania Kalik uh, has written about that, where she also has been threatened, people saying she should be raped and killed, etc. Uh, anywho, uh, for this week in the audiobook. American sniper Chris Kyle. Uh, we are picking up. We're in chapter 10. Uh, we are under the subheading Working with the Army. Working with the Army. For me, that's on page 463. Uh, we want to go ahead and get started. I think we only have one more session left, so we're right at the finish line. Context of white supremacy American sniper Chris Kyle. Working with the Army. With the initial attacks dying down after a couple of days, we foot-patrolled back to Cop Falcon from Four Story. There, we met with the captain of the force and told him that we wanted to be based out of Falcon rather than having to go all the way back to Camp Ramadi every few days. He gave us the in-law suite. We were the Army's in-laws. We also told him that we would help him clear whatever area he wanted. His job was to clear the city around Cop Falcon, and ours was to help him. What's the worst spot you got, we asked. He pointed it out. That's where we're going, we said. He shook his head and rolled his eyes. You guys are crazy, he said. 
You can have that house. You can outfit it however you want. You can go wherever you want. But I want you to know, I'm not coming to get you if you go out there. There are too many IEDs. I'm going to lose a tank. I can't do it. Like a lot of the Army, I'm sure the captain initially looked at us skeptically. They all assumed we thought we were better than they were, that we had outsized egos and shot off our mouths without being able to back it up. Once we proved to them that we didn't think we were better than them, more experienced, yes, but not stuck up, if you know what I mean, then they usually came around. We formed strong working relationships with the units, and even friendships that lasted after the war. The captain's unit was doing cordon and search operations, where they would take an entire block and search it. We started working with them. We'd do daylight presence patrols. The idea was to make civilians see troops on a regular basis, gaining more confidence that they were going to be protected, or that at least we were there to stay. We would put half the platoon on an overwatch while the rest patrolled. A lot of these overwatches would be near four-story. The guys downstairs would patrol and almost always be contacted. I'd be upstairs with other snipers and nail whoever was trying to attack them. Or we would bump out 500 yards, six or 800 yards, going deep into engine territory to look and wait for the bad guys. We'd set up on overwatch ahead of one of his patrols. As soon as his people showed up, they'd draw all sorts of insurgents toward him. We'd take them down. The bad guys would turn and try and fire on us. We'd pick them off. We were protectors, bait, and slayers. After a few days, the captain came up to us and said, Y'all are badass. I don't care where you go. If you need me, I'm coming to get you. I'll drive the tank to the front door. And from that moment on, he had our faith and our back. I was on overwatch at four-story one morning when some of our guys started doing a patrol nearby. As they moved across the street, I spotted some insurgents coming down J Street, which was one of the main roads in that area. I took down a couple. My guys scattered. Not knowing what was going on, someone asked over the radio why the hell I was shooting at them. I'm shooting over your head, I told them. Look down the street. Insurgents started feeding into the area, and a huge firefight erupted. I saw one guy with an RPG. I got him in my crosshairs, squeezed easy on the trigger. He fell. A few minutes later, one of his friends came out to grab the rocket launcher. He fell. This went on for quite a while. Down the block, another insurgent with an AK tried to get a shot on my boys. I took him down, then took down the guy who came to get his gun, and the next one. Target-rich environment? Hell, there were piles of insurgents littering the road. They finally gave up and disappeared. Our guys continued to patrol. The Jundies saw action that day. Two of them died in a firefight. It was tough to keep track of how many kills I got that day, but I believe the total was the highest I'd ever had in a single day. We knew we were in good with the Army captain when he came over to us one day and said, Listen, y'all gotta do one thing for me. Before I get shipped out of here, I wanna shoot my main tank gun one time, all right? So call me. It wasn't too long after that we got in a firefight and we got his unit on the radio. We called him over and he got his tank in and he got his shot. There were a lot more in the days that followed. By the time he left Ramadi, he'd shot it 37 times. Prayers and Bandoliers
Before every op, a bunch of the platoon would gather and say a prayer. Mark Lee would lead it, usually speaking from the heart, rather than reciting a memorized prayer. I didn't pray every time going out, but I did thank God every night when I got back. There was one other ritual when we returned. Cigars. A few of us would get together and smoke them at the end of an op. In Iraq, you can get Cubans. We smoked Romeo y Julieta number threes. We'd light up to top off the day. In a way, we all thought we were invincible. In another way, we also accepted the fact that we could die. I didn't focus on death or spend much time thinking about it. It was more like an idea lurking in the distance. It was during this deployment that I invented a little wrist bandolier, a small bullet holder that allowed me to easily reload without disturbing my gun setup. I took a holder that had been designed to be strapped on a gun stock and cut it up. Then I arranged some cord through it and tied it to my left wrist. Generally, when I fired, I would have my fist balled up under the gun to help me aim. That brought the bandolier close. I could fire, take my right hand and grab more bullets, and keep my eyes sighted through the scope at all times. As lead sniper, I tried to help the new guys, telling them what details to look for. You could tell someone was an insurgent not just by the fact that he was armed, but by the way he moved. I started giving advice I'd been given back at the beginning of Fallujah, a battle that by now seemed like a million years ago. Dauber, don't be afraid to pull the trigger, I'd tell the younger sniper. If it's within the ROEs, you take him. A little bit of hesitation was common for the new guys. Maybe all Americans are a little hesitant to be the first to shoot, even when it's clear that we're under attack, or will be shortly. Our enemies seemed to have no such problem. With a little experience, our guys didn't either. But you could never tell how a guy was going to perform under the stress of combat. Dauber did real well, real well. But I noticed that for some snipers, the extra strain made them miss shots that they would have no trouble with in training. One guy in particular, an excellent guy and a good seal, went through a spell where he was missing quite a lot. You just couldn't tell how someone was going to react. Ramadi was infested with insurgents, but there was a large civilian population. Sometimes they'd wander into firefights. You'd wonder what the hell they were thinking. One day we were in a house in another part of the city. We'd engaged a bunch of insurgents, killing quite a few, and were waiting through a lull in the action. The bad guys were probably nearby waiting for another chance to attack. Insurgents normally put small rocks in the middle of the road to warn others where they were. Civilians usually saw the rocks and quickly realized what was going on. They always stayed far away. Hours might pass before we saw any people again. And, of course, by that point, the people we would be seeing would have guns and be trying to kill us. For some reason, this car came flying over the rocks and floored it, speeding toward us and passing all sorts of dead men on the way. I threw a flash crash, but the grenade didn't get the driver to stop, so I fired into the front of the car. The bullet went right through the engine compartment. He stopped and bailed out of the car, yelling as he hopped around. Two women were with him in the car, they must have been the stupidest people in the city because even with all that had happened, they were oblivious to us or the danger around them. They started coming toward our house. I threw another flash crash grenade and finally they started moving back in the direction they'd come. 
Finally, they'd seemed to notice some of the bodies that were littered around and started screaming. They seemed to have gotten away okay except for the foot wound, but it was a miracle they hadn't been killed. The pace was hot and heavy. It made us want more. We ached for it. When the bad guys were hiding, we tried to dare them into showing themselves so we could take them down. One of the guys had a bandana, which we took and fashioned into a kind of mummy head. Equipped with goggles and a helmet, it looked almost like a soldier, certainly at a few hundred yards. So we attached it to a pole and held it up over the roof, trying to draw a fire one day when the action slowed. It brought a couple of insurgents out, and we bagged them. We were just slaughtering them. There were times when we were so successful on Overwatch that I thought our guys on the street were starting to get a little careless. I once spotted them going down the middle of the street, rather than using the side and ducking into the little cover area provided by the walls and openings. I called down on the radio. Hey, y'all need to be going cover to cover, I told them, scolding them gently. Why? answered one of my platoon mates. You've got us covered. He may have been joking, but I took it seriously. I can't protect you from something I don't see, I said. If I don't see a glint or movement, the first time I know he's there is when he shoots. I can get him after he shot you, but that's not going to help you. Heading back to Shark Base one night, we got involved in another firefight, a quick hit-and-run affair. At some point, a frag came over and exploded near some of the guys. The insurgents ran off, and we picked ourselves back up and got going. Brad, what's wrong with your leg? Someone in the platoon asked. He looked down. It was covered with blood. Nothing, he said. It turned out he'd caught a piece of metal in his knee. It may not have hurt then. I don't know how true that is, since no seal has ever actually admitted feeling pain since the beginning of creation. But when he got back to Shark Base, it was clear... The wound wasn't something he could just blow off. Shrapnel had wedged itself behind his patella. He needed to be operated on. He was airlifted out, our first casualty in Ramadi. The Constant Gardener Our sister platoon was on the east side of the city, helping the army put in cops there, and to the north, the Marines were doing their thing, taking areas, holding and clearing them of insurgents. We went back for a few days to work with the Marines when they took down a hospital north of the city on the river. The insurgents were using the hospital as a gathering point. As the Marines came in, a teenager, I'd guess about 15, 16, appeared on the street and squared up with an AK-47 to fire at him. I dropped him. A minute or two later, an Iraqi woman came running up, saw him on the ground, and tore off her clothes. She was obviously his mother. I'd see the families of the insurgents display their grief, tear off clothes, even rub the blood on themselves. If you loved them, I thought, you should have kept them away from the war. You should have kept them from joining the insurgency. You let them try and kill us. What did you think would happen to them? It's cruel, maybe, but it's hard to sympathize with grief when it's over someone who just tried to kill you. Maybe they'd have felt the same way about us. People back home, people who haven't been in war, or at least not that war, sometimes don't seem to understand how the troops in Iraq acted. They're surprised, shocked, to discover we often joked about death, about things we saw. 
Maybe it seems cruel or inappropriate. Maybe it would be under different circumstances. But in the context of where we were, it made a lot of sense. We saw terrible things and lived through terrible things. Part of it was letting off pressure or steam, I'm sure, a way to cope. If you can't make sense of things, you start to look for some other way to deal with them. You laugh because you have to have some emotion. You have to express yourself somehow. Every op could mix life and death in surreal ways. On that same operation to take the hospital, we secured a house to scout the area before the Marines moved in. We'd been in the hide for a while when a guy came out with a wheelbarrow to plant an IED in the backyard where we were. One of our new guys shot him, but he didn't die. He fell and rolled around on the ground, still alive. It happened that the man who shot him was a corpsman. You shot him, you save him, we told him. And so he ran down and tried to resuscitate him. Unfortunately, the Iraqi died, and in the process, his bowels let loose. The corpsman and another new guy had to carry the body out with us when we left. Well, they eventually reached a fence at the Marine compound. They didn't know what to do. Finally, they just threw him up and over, then clambered after him. It was like weekend at Bernie's. In the space of less than an hour, we'd shot a guy who wanted to blow us up, tried to save his life, and desecrated his body. The battlefield is a bizarre place. Soon after the hospital was secured, we went back to the river where the marine boats had dropped us off. As we got down the bank, an enemy machine gun started tearing up the night. We hit the dirt lying there for several long minutes, pinned down by a single Iraqi gunner. Thank God he sucked at shooting. It was always a delicate balance, life and death, comedy and tragedy. Taya I never played the video Chris had recorded of himself reading the book for our son. Part of it was the fact that I didn't want to see Chris getting all choked up. I was emotional enough as it was. Seeing him choked up reading to our son would have torn me up more than I already was. And part of it was just a feeling on my part. Anger toward Chris, maybe. You left. You're gone. Go. It was harsh, but maybe it was a survival instinct. I was the same way when it came to his death letters. While he was deployed, he wrote letters to be delivered to the kids and me if he died. After the first deployment, I asked to read whatever he had written, and he said he didn't have it anymore. After that, he never offered them up, and I never asked to see them. Maybe it was just because I was mad at him, but I thought to myself, we are not glorifying this after you're dead. If you feel loving and adoring, you better let me know while you're alive. Maybe it wasn't fair, but a lot of life then wasn't fair, and that's the way I felt. Show me now. Make it real. Don't just say some sappy shit when you're gone. Otherwise, it's a load of crap. Guardians and Devils Ninety-six Americans were killed during the Battle of Ramadi. Countless more were wounded and had to be taken from the battlefield. I was lucky not to be one of them, though there were so many close calls I began to think I had a guardian angel. One time we were in a building and we were hosed down by the insurgents outside. I was out in the hallway, and as the shooting died down, I went into one of the rooms to check on some of my guys. As I came in, I jerked straight back, falling backward as a shot came in through the window at my head. The bullet just flew over me as I fell. 
Why I went down like that, how I saw that bullet coming at me, I have no idea. It was almost as if someone had slowed time down and pushed me straight back. Did I have a guardian angel? No idea. Fuck, Chris is dead, said one of my boys as I lay on my back. Damn, said the other. Nope, nope, I yelled, still flat on the floor. I'm good, I'm good, I'm okay. I checked for holes a few dozen times, but there were none. All good. IEDs were much more common in Ramadi than they had been in Fallujah. The insurgents had learned a lot about setting them since the beginning of the war, and they tended to be pretty powerful, strong enough to lift a Bradley off the ground, as I'd found out earlier in Baghdad. The EOD guys who worked with us were not SEALs, but we came to trust them as much as if they were. We'd stick them on the back of the train when we went into a building, then call them forward if we saw something suspicious. At that point, their job was to identify the booby trap. If it was a bomb, and we were in a house, we would have gotten the hell out of there fast. That never happened to us, but there was one time when we were in a house and some insurgents managed to plant an IED right outside the front door. They had stacked two 105mm shells waiting for us to come out. Fortunately, our EOD guy spotted it before we moved out. We were able to sledgehammer our way out through a second-story wall and escape across a low roof. A Wanted Man All Americans were wanted men in Ramadi, snipers most of all. Reportedly, the insurgents put out a bounty on my head. They also gave me a name, Al-Shaitan Ramadi, the Devil of Ramadi. It made me feel proud. The fact is, I was just one guy and they had singled me out for causing them a lot of damage. They wanted me gone. I had to feel good about that. They definitely knew who I was, and had clearly gotten intelligence from some fellow Iraqis who were supposedly loyal to us. They described the Red Cross I had on my arm. The other sniper from my sister platoon got a bounty on his head as well. His ended up being more. Well, that did make me a little jealous. But it was all good because when they put their posters together and made one of me, they used his photo instead of mine. I was more than happy to let him make that mistake. The bounty went up as the battle went on. Hell, I think it got so high my wife may have been tempted to turn me in. Progress We helped set up several more cops, and meanwhile our sister platoon did the same on the eastern side of the city. As the weeks turned into months, Ramadi started to change. The place was still a hellhole, extremely dangerous, but there were signs of progress. The tribal leaders were more vocal about wanting peace, and more began working together as a unified council. The official government still wasn't functioning here, and the Iraqi police and army were nowhere near capable of keeping order, naturally, but there were large sections of the city under relative control. The inkblot strategy was working. Could those blots spread over the entire city? Progress was never guaranteed, and even when we succeeded for a while, there was no guarantee things wouldn't go backward. We had to return to the area near the river around Cop Falcon several times, provide an overwatch while the area was searched for caches and insurgents. We'd clear a block, it would be peaceful for a while, and then we'd have to start all over again. 
We worked a bit more with the Marines as well, stopping and inspecting small craft, going after a suspected weapons cache, and even running a few DAs for them. A few times we were tasked to check and then blow up abandoned boats to make sure they couldn't be used for smuggling. Funny thing, the SBU unit that had blown us off earlier heard about how much action we were getting and contacted us, asking now if they could come up and work with us. We told them thanks, but no thanks. We were doing just fine with the Marines. We got into a certain rhythm working with the Army as they continued cordoning off areas and searching them for weapons and bad guys. We'd drive in with them, take over a building, and go up on the roof for overwatch. Most times there would be three of us, myself and another sniper, along with Ryan on the 60. Meanwhile, the Army would move out to the next building. That taken, they'd work their way down the street. Once they reached a certain spot where we couldn't see or provide them security, we'd come down and move to a new spot. The process would start all over again. It was on one of these ops that Ryan got shot. 11. Man Down What the hell? One very hot summer day, we took a small apartment building with a good view of one of the major east-west roads through the center of Ramadi. It was four stories high, the staircase lined with windows, the roof open, and with a good view of the area. It was a clear day. Ryan was joking with me as we went in. He was cracking me up. He always made me laugh, made me relax. Smiling, I posted him to watch the road. Our troops were working on a side street on the other side of the roof, and I figured that if the insurgents were going to launch an ambush or try and attack us, they would come down that road. Meanwhile, I watched the team on the ground. The assault began smoothly, with the soldiers taking first one house and then another. They moved quickly, without a snag. Suddenly, shots flew through our position. I ducked down as a round hit the cement nearby, splattering chips everywhere. This was an everyday occurrence in Ramadi, something that happened not once a day, but several times. I waited a second to make sure the insurgents were done firing, then got back up. You guys all right? I yelled, looking down the street toward the soldiers on the ground, making sure they were okay. Yeah, grunted the other sniper. Ryan didn't answer. I glanced back and saw him, still down. Hey, get up, I told him. They stopped firing. Come on. He didn't move. I went over. What the hell? I yelled at him. Get up! Get up! Then I saw the blood. I knelt down and looked at him. There was blood all over. The side of his face had been smashed in. He'd taken a bullet. We had pounded into him the fact that you have to always have your weapon up and ready. He had it up and scanning when the bullet hit. It apparently got the rifle first, then ricocheted into his face. I grabbed the radio. Man down, I yelled. Man down. I dropped back and examined his wounds. I didn't know what to do, where to start. Ryan looked as if he'd been hit so bad that he was going to die. His body shook. I thought it was a death spasm. Two of our platoon guys, Dauber and Tommy, ran up. They were both corpsmen. They slipped down between us and started treating him. Mark Lee came up behind him. He took the 60 and began laying down fire in the direction the shots had come from, chasing the insurgents back so we could carry Ryan down the stairs. I picked him up and held him up over my shoulder, then started to run. I reached the stairs and started going down quickly. 
About halfway, he started groaning loudly. The way I was holding him, the blood had brushed into his throat and head, and he was having trouble breathing. I set him down even more worried, knowing in my heart he was going to die, hoping that somehow, some way, I might do something to keep him going, even though it was hopeless. Ryan began spitting blood. He caught his breath. He was breathing, a miracle in itself. I reached out to grab him and pick him up again. No, he said. No, no, I'm good. I got this. I'm walking. He put an arm around me and walked himself down the rest of the way. Meanwhile, the Army rolled a tracked vehicle, a personnel carrier, up to the front door. Tommy went in with Ryan, and they pulled away. I ran back upstairs feeling as if I'd been shot, and wishing that it had been me, not him, who was hit. I was sure he was going to die. I was sure I'd just lost a brother, a big, goofy, lovable, great brother. Biggles. Nothing I'd experienced in Iraq had ever affected me like this. Payback. We collapsed back to Shark Base. As soon as we got there, I shed my gear and put my back against the wall, then slowly lowered myself to the ground. Tears started flowing from my eyes. I thought Ryan was dead. Actually, he was still alive, if just barely. The docks worked like hell to save him. Ryan would eventually be medevaced out of Iraq. His wounds were severe. He'd never see again, not only out of the eye that had been hit, but the other as well. It was a miracle that he lived. But at that moment at base, I was sure he was dead. I knew it in my stomach, in my heart, in every part of me. I'd put him in the spot where he got hit. It was my fault he'd been shot. A hundred kills? Two hundred? More? What did they mean if my brother was dead? Why hadn't I put myself there? Why hadn't I been standing there? I could have gotten the bastard. I could have saved my boy. I was in a dark hole, deep down. How long I stayed there, head buried, tears flowing, I have no idea. Hey, said a voice above me finally. I looked up. It was Tony, my chief. You want to go get some payback? he asked. Fuck yeah, I do. I jumped to my feet. A few guys weren't sure whether we should go or not. We talked about it and planned out the mission. I didn't hardly have time for it, though. I just wanted blood for my guy. Mark The intel put the bad guys in a house not too far from where Ryan had been hit. A couple of Bradleys drove us over to a field near the house. I was in a second vehicle. Some of the other guys had already gone into the house by the time we arrived. As soon as the ramp dropped on our Bradley, bullets started flying. I ran to join the others and found them stacking to go up the stairs to the second floor. We were huddled together, facing downward, waiting to move up. Mark Lee was at the lead, above us on the steps. He turned, glancing out the window on the staircase. As he did, he saw something and opened his mouth to shout a warning. He never got the words out. In that split second, a bullet passed right through his open mouth and flew out the back of his head. He dropped down in a pile on the steps. We'd been set up. There was a savage on the roof of the house next door looking down at the window from the roof there. Training took over. I scrambled up the steps, stepping over Mark's body. I sent a hail of bullets through the window, flushing the neighboring roof. 
So did my teammates. One of us got the insurgent. We didn't stop to figure out who it was. We went on up to the roof looking for more of our ambushers. Dauber, meanwhile, stopped to check Mark. He was hurt pretty bad. Dauber knew there was no hope. The tank captain came and got us. They were engaged the whole way, driving in under heavy contact. He brought two tanks and four Bradleys, and they went Winchester, firing all their ammo. It was shit hot, a fierce hail of lead covering our retreat. On the way back, I looked out the port on the back ramp of my Bradley. All I could see was black smoke and ruined buildings. They'd suckered us, and their entire neighborhood had paid the price. For some reason, most of us thought Mark was going to live. We thought Ryan was going to die. It wasn't until we got back to camp that we heard their fates were reversed. Having lost two guys in the space of a few hours, our officers and Tony decided it was time for us to take a break. We went back to Shark Base and stood down. Standing down means you're out of action and unavailable for combat. In some ways, it's like an official timeout to assess or reassess what you're doing. It was August. Hot, bloody, and black. Taya. Chris broke down when he called me with the news. I hadn't heard anything about it until he called, and it took me by surprise. I felt grateful that it wasn't him, yet incredibly sad that it was any of them. I tried to be as quiet as possible as he talked. I wanted just to listen. There have been very few times in his life, if ever, that I've seen Chris in that much pain. There was nothing I could do, aside from telling his relatives for him. We sat on the phone for a long time. A few days later, I went to the funeral at the cemetery overlooking San Diego Bay. It was so sad. There were so many young guys, so many young families. It was emotional to be at other SEAL funerals, but this was even more so. You feel so bad. You cannot imagine their pain. You pray for them, and you thank God for your husband being spared. You thank God you are not the one in the front row. People who've heard this story tell me my description gets bare and my voice far away. They say I use less words to describe what happened, give less detail than I usually do. I'm not conscious of it. The memory of losing my two boys burns hot and deep. To me, it's as vivid as what is happening around me at this very moment. To me, it's as deep and fresh a wound as if those bullets came into my own flesh this very moment. Standing Down We had a memorial service at Camp Ramadi for Mark Lee. Seals from every part of Iraq came in for it, and I believe the entire army unit we'd been working with showed up. They had a lot of concern for us. It was unbelievable. I was very moved. They put us on the front row. We were his family. Mark's gear was right there, helmet and Mark 48. Our task unit commander gave us a short but powerful speech. He teared up, and I doubt there was a dry eye in the audience, or the camp for that matter. As the service ended, each unit left a token of appreciation, a unit patch or coin, something. The captain of the army unit left a piece of brass from one of the rounds he'd fired getting us out. Someone in our platoon put together a memorial video with some slides of him and played it that night with the movie showing on a white sheet we had hung over a brick wall. 
We shared some drinks and a lot of sadness. Four of our guys accompanied his body back home. Meanwhile, since we were on stand-down and not doing anything, I tried to go see Ryan in Germany, where he was being treated. Tony or someone else in the headshed arranged to get me on a flight, but by the time everything was set up, Ryan was already being shipped back to the States for treatment. Brad, who'd been evac'd earlier because of the frag wound in his knee, met Ryan in Germany and went back to the States with him. It was lucky in a way. Ryan had one of us to be with him and help him deal with everything he had to face. We all spent a lot of time in our rooms. Ramadi had been hot and heavy, with an op-tempo that was pretty severe, worse even than Fallujah. We'd spend several days, even a week out, with barely a break in between. Some of us were starting to get a little burned out even before our guys got hit. We stayed in our rooms, replacing bodily fluids, keeping to ourselves mostly. I spent a lot of time praying to God. I'm not the kind of person who makes a big show out of religion. I believe, but I don't necessarily get down on my knees or sing real loud in church. But I find some comfort in faith, and I found it in those days after my friends had been shot up. Ever since I had gone through Bud's, I'd carried a Bible with me. I hadn't read it all that much, but it had always been with me. Now I opened it and read some of the passages— I skipped around, read a bit, skipped around some more. With all hell breaking loose around me, it felt better to know I was part of something bigger. My emotions shot up when I heard that Ryan had survived, but my overriding reaction was, why wasn't it me? Why did this have to happen to a new guy? I'd seen a lot of action. I'd had my achievements. I had my war. I should have been the one sidelined. I should have been the one blinded. Ryan would never see the look on his family's face when he came home. He'd never see how much sweeter everything is when you get back. See how much better America looks when you've been gone from it for a while. You forget how beautiful life is if you don't get a chance to see things like that. He never would. And no matter what anybody told me, I felt responsible for that. Replacements. We'd been in that war for four years through countless hairy situations, and no SEAL had ever died. It had looked like the action in Ramadi and all Iraq was starting to wind down, and now we'd been hit terribly hard. We thought we would be shut down, even though our deployment still had a couple of months to run. We all knew the politics. My first two commanders had been ultra-cautious pussies who got ahead because of it so we were afraid that the war was over for us. Plus, we were seven men short, cut nearly in half. Mark was dead, Brad and Ryan were out because of their wounds. Four guys had gone home to escort Mark's body home. A week after losing our guys, the CO came around to talk to us. We gathered in the chow hall at Shark Base and listened as he talked. It wasn't a long speech. It's up to you, he said. If you want to take it easy now, I understand. But if you want to go out, you have my blessing. Fuck yeah, we all said. We want to go out. I sure did. Half of a platoon joined us from a quieter area to help fill us out. 
We also got some guys who had graduated training but hadn't been assigned to a platoon yet. Real new guys. The idea was to give them a little exposure to the war, a little taste of what they were getting into before they trained up for the main event. We were pretty careful with them. We didn't allow them to go out on ops. Being SEALs, they were chomping at the bit, but we held them back, treating them like gophers at first. Hey, go line the Hummers up so we can go. It was a protection thing. After all we'd just been through, we didn't want them getting hurt out in the field. We did have to haze him, of course. This one poor fella, we shaved his head and his eyebrows, then spray-glued the hair back on his face. While we were in the middle of that, another new guy walked into the outer room. You don't want to go in there, warned one of our officers. The new guy peeked in and saw his buddy getting pummeled. I gotta. You don't want to go in there, repeated the officer. It's not going to end well. I have to. He's my buddy. Your funeral, said the officer, or words to that effect. New guy number two ran into the room. We respected the fact that he was coming to his friend's rescue and showered him with affection. Then we shaved him, too, taped them together, and stood him in the corner. Just for a few minutes. We also hazed a new guy officer. He got about what everyone got, but he didn't take it too well. He didn't like the idea of being mishandled by some dirty enlisted men. Rank is a funny concept in the teams. It's not disrespected exactly, but it's clearly not the full measure of the man. In Buds, officers and enlisted are treated the same. Like shit. Once you make it through and join the teams, you're a new guy. Again, all the new guys are treated the same. Like shit. Most officers take it fairly well, though obviously there are exceptions. The truth is the teams are run by the senior enlisted. A guy who's a chief has 12 to 16 years of experience. An officer joining a platoon has far less, not just in SEALs, but in the Navy as well. Most of the time, he just doesn't know shit. Even an OIC might have only four or five years' experience. That's the way the system works. If he's lucky, an officer might get as many as three platoons. After that, he's promoted to task unit commander or something similar and no longer works directly in the field. Even to get there, much of what he's done has been admin work and things like deconfliction, making sure a unit doesn't get fired on by another one. Those are important tasks, but they're not quite the same as hands-on combat. When it comes to door-kicking or setting up a sniper hide, the officer's experience generally doesn't run too deep. There are exceptions, of course. I worked with some great officers with good experience, but as a general rule, an officer's knowledge of down-and-dirty combat is just nowhere near the same as the guy with many years of combat under his belt. I used to tease LT that when we did a D.A., he would be in the stack, ready to go in, not with a rifle, but his tactical computer. Hazen helps remind everybody where the experience lies, and who you better look to when the shit hits the fan. It also shows the people who have been around a little bit what to expect from the new guys. Compare and contrast. Who do you want on your back? The guy who ran in to save his buddy, or the officer who shed tears because he was being mistreated by some dirty enlisted men? Hazen humbles all the new guys, reminding them that they don't know shit yet. In the case of an officer, that dose of humility can go a long way. 
I've had good officers, but all the great ones were humble. Back in the mix. We worked back into things slowly, starting with brief overwatches with the Army. Our missions would last for an overnight or two in engine country. A tank got hit by an IED, and we went out and pulled security on it until it could be recovered. The work was a little lighter, easier than it had been. We didn't go as far from the cops, which meant that we didn't draw as much fire. With our heads back in the game, we started to extend. We went deeper into Ramadi. We never actually went to the house where Mark had been shot, but we were back in that area. Our attitude was, we're going out there, and we're getting the guys who did this back. We're going to make them pay for what they did to us. We were at a house one day, and after taking down some insurgents who'd been trying to plant IEDs, we came under fire ourselves. Whoever was shooting at us had something heavier than an AK, maybe a Dragunov, the Russian-made sniper rifle, because the bullets flew through the walls of the house. I was up on the roof, trying to figure out where the gunfire was coming from. Suddenly I heard the heavy whoop of Apache helicopters approaching. I watched as they circled placidly for a second, then tipped and fell into a coordinated attack dive. In our direction. V.S. panels, someone shouted. That might have been me. All I know is, we hustled out every V.S. or recognition panel we had, trying to show the pilots we were friendly. V.S. panels are bright orange pieces of cloth, hung or laid out by friendly forces. Fortunately, they figured it out and broke off at the last moment. Our comm guy had been talking to the Army helos just before the attack and gave them our location, but apparently their maps were labeled differently than ours, and when they saw men on the roof with guns, they drew the wrong conclusions. We worked with the Apaches quite a bit in Ramadi. The aircraft were valuable, not just for their guns and rockets, but also for their ability to scout around the area. It's not always clear in a city where gunfire is coming from, having a set of eyes above you, and being able to talk to the people who own those eyes can help you figure things out. The Apaches had different ROEs than we did. These especially came into play when firing Hellfire missiles, which could only be used against crew-served weapons at the time. This was part of the strategy for limiting the amount of collateral damage in the city. Air Force AC-130s also helped out with aerial observation from time to time, the big gunships had awesome firepower, though as it happened, we never called on them to use their howitzers or cannons during this deployment. Again, they had restrictive ROEs. Instead, we relied on their night sensors, which gave them a good picture of the battlefield, even in the pitch black. One night, we hit a house on a DA while a gunship circled above protectively. While we were going in, they called down and told us that we had a couple of squirters, guys running out the back. I peeled off with a few of my boys and started following in the direction the gunship gave us. It appeared that the insurgents had ducked into a nearby house. I went in and was met inside by a young man in his early twenties. Get down, I yelled at him, motioning with my gun. He looked at me blankly. I gestured again, this time pretty emphatically. Down, down. He looked at me dumbfounded. I couldn't tell whether he was planning to attack me or not and I sure couldn't figure out why he wasn't complying. Better safe than sorry. I punched him and slapped him down to the ground. 
His mother jumped up from the back yelling something. By now, there were a couple of guys inside with me, including my terp. The interpreter finally got things calmed down and started asking questions. The mother eventually explained that the boy was mentally handicapped and didn't understand what I'd been doing. We let him up. Meanwhile, standing quietly to one side was a man we thought was the father. But once we settled her concerns about her son, the mother made it clear she didn't know who the asshole was. It turned out that he had just run in only pretending to live there. So we had one of our squirters, courtesy of the Air Force. I suppose I shouldn't tell that story without giving myself up. The house where the men ran from was actually the third house we hit that night. I'd led the boys to the first. We were all lined up outside getting ready to breach in when our OIC raised his voice. Something doesn't look right, he said. I'm not feeling this. I craned my head back and glanced around. Shit, I admitted. I took you all to the wrong house. We backed out and went to the right one. Did I ever hear the end of that? Rhetorical question. Twofer. One day we were out on an op near Sunset and another street, which came off on a T-intersection. Dauber and I were up on a roof, watching to see what the locals were up to. Dauber had just gone off the gun for a break. As I pulled up my scope, I spotted two guys coming down the street toward me on a moped. The guy on the back had a backpack. As I was watching, he dropped the backpack into a pothole. He wasn't dropping the mail. He was setting an IED. Y'all gotta watch this, I told Dauber, who picked up his binoculars. I let him go about 150 yards away before I fired my 300 Win Mag. Dauber, watching through the binos, said it was like a scene from Dumb and Dumber. The bullet went through the first guy and into the second. The moped wobbled, then veered into a wall. Two guys with one shot. The taxpayer got a good bang for his buck on that one. The shot ended up being controversial. Because of the IED, the Army sent some people over to the scene, but it took them something like six hours to get there. Traffic backed up, and it was impossible for me or anyone else to watch the pothole for the entire time. Further complicating things, the Marines took down a dump truck suspected of being a mobile IED on the same road. Traffic backed up all over the place, and naturally the IED disappeared. Ordinarily, that wouldn't have been a problem, but a few days earlier, we had noticed a pattern. Mopeds would ride past a cop a few minutes before and after an attack, obviously scouting the place and then getting intel on the attack. We requested to be cleared hot to shoot anyone on a moped. The request was denied. The lawyers or someone in the chain of command probably thought I was blowing them off when they heard about my double shot. The JAG, Judge Advocate General, kind of like a military version of a prosecuting attorney, came out and investigated. Fortunately, there were plenty of witnesses to what had happened, but I still had to answer all the JAG's questions. Meanwhile, the insurgents kept using mopeds and gathering intelligence. We watched them closely and destroyed every parked moped we came across in houses and yards, but that was the most we could do. Maybe legal expected us to wave and smile for the cameras. It would have been tough to go in and just blatantly shoot people in Iraq. For one thing, there were always plenty of witnesses around. For another, 
Every time I killed someone in Ramadi, I had to write a shooter statement on it. No joke. This was a report, separate from after-action reports, related only to the shots I took and kills I recorded. The information had to be very specific. I had a little notebook with me, and I'd record the day, the time, details about the person, what he was doing, the round I used, how many shots I took, how far away the target was, and who witnessed the shot. All that went into the report, along with any other special circumstances. The headshed claimed it was to protect me in case there was ever an investigation for an unjustified kill, but what I think I was really doing was covering the butts of people much further up the chain of command. We kept a running tally of how many insurgents we shot, even during the worst firefights. One of our officers was always tasked with getting his own details on the shooting. He, in turn, would relay it back by radio. There were plenty of times while I was still engaging insurgents and giving details to LT or another officer at the same time. It got to be such a pain in the ass that one time when the officer came to ask the details on my shot, I told him it was a kid waving at me. It was just a sick joke I made. It was my way of saying, fuck off. The red tape of war. I'm not sure how widespread the shooter statements were, for me, the process began during my second deployment when I was working on Haifa Street. In that case, someone else filled them out for me. I'm pretty sure it was all CYA, cover your ass, or in this case, cover the top guy's ass. We were slaughtering the enemy. In Ramadi, with our kill total becoming astronomical, the statements became mandatory and elaborate. I'd guessed that the CO or someone on his staff saw the numbers and said that the lawyers might question what was going on, so let's protect ourselves. Great way to fight a war. Be prepared to defend yourself for winning. What a pain in the ass. I joked that it wasn't worth shooting someone. On the other hand, that's the only way I know exactly how many people I officially killed. Clear Conscience Sometimes it seems like God was holding them back until I got the gun. Hey, wake up. I opened my eyes and looked up from my spot on the floor. Let's rotate, said Jay, my LPO. He'd been on the gun for about four hours while I'd been catching a nap. All right. I unfolded myself from the ground and moved over to the gun. So, what's been going on, I asked. Whenever someone came on the gun... The person he was relieving would brief him quickly, describing who'd been in the neighborhood, etc. Nothing, said Jay. I haven't seen anyone. Nothing? Nothing. We swapped positions. Jay pulled his ball cap down to catch some sleep. I put my eye near the site, scanning. Not ten seconds later, an insurgent walked fat into the crosshairs, A.K. out. I watched him move tactically toward an American position for a few seconds, confirming that he was within the ROEs. Then I shot him. I fucking hate you, grumbled Jay from the floor nearby. He didn't bother moving his ball cap, let alone get up. I never had any doubts about the people I shot. My guys would tease me. Yeah, I know, Chris. He's got a little gun cut on the end of his scope. Everybody he sees is in the ROEs. But the truth was, my targets were always obvious, and I, of course, had plenty of witnesses every time I shot. The way things worked, you couldn't chance making a mistake. 
you'd be crucified if you didn't strictly obey the ROEs. Back in Fallujah, there was an incident involving Marines clearing a house. A unit had gone into a house, stepping over some bodies as they moved to clear the rooms. Unfortunately, one of the bastards on the ground wasn't dead. After the Marines were in the house, he rolled over and pulled the pin on a grenade. It exploded, killing or wounding some of the Marines. From then on, the Marines started putting a round in anybody they saw as they entered a house. At some point, a newsman with the camera recorded this. The video became public, and the Marines got in trouble. Charges were either dropped or never actually filed, since the initial investigation explained the circumstances. Still, even the potential for charges was something you were always aware of. The worst thing that you could ever do for that war was having all these media people embedded in the units. Most Americans can't take the reality of war, and the reports they sent back didn't help us at all. The leadership wanted to have the backing of the public for the war, but really, who cares? The way I figure it, if you send us to do a job, let us do it. That's why you have admirals and generals. Let them supervise us, not some fat-ass congressman sitting in a leather chair smoking a cigar back in D.C. in an air-conditioned office telling me when and where I can and cannot shoot someone. How would they know? They've never even been in a combat situation. And once you decide to send us, let me do my job. War is war. Tell me, do you want us to conquer our enemy, annihilate them, or are we headed over to serve them tea and cookies? Tell the military the end result you want, and you'll get it. But don't try and tell us how to do it. All those rules about when and under what circumstances an enemy combatant could be killed just didn't make our jobs harder. They put our lives in danger. The ROEs got so convoluted and fucked up because politicians were interfering in the process. The rules are drawn up by lawyers who are trying to protect the admirals and generals from the politicians. They're not written by people who are worried about the guys on the ground getting shot. For some reason, a lot of people back home, not all people, didn't accept that we were at war. They didn't accept that war means death, violent death most times. A lot of people, not just politicians, wanted to impose ridiculous fantasies on us, hold us to some standard of behavior that no human being could maintain. I'm not saying war crimes should be committed. I am saying that warriors need to be let loose to fight war without their hands tied behind their backs. According to the ROEs I followed in Iraq, if someone came into my house, shot my wife, my kids, and then threw his gun down, I was supposed to not shoot him. I was supposed to take him gently into custody. Would you? You can argue that my success proves the ROEs worked, but I feel that I could have been more effective, probably protected more people, and helped bring the war to a quicker conclusion without them. It seemed the only news stories we read were about atrocities or how impossible it was going to be to pacify Ramadi. Guess what? We killed all those bad guys. And what happened? The Iraqi tribal leaders finally realized we meant business, and they finally banded together not just to govern themselves, but to kick the insurgents out. It took force, it took violence of action, to create a situation where there could be peace. 
Violence solves everything. Context of white supremacy. We will be picking up... Whoops, I flipped my chat. You know, I should have just let this go one more page because we would have ended the chapter. But anywho, we will be picking up... Uh, we are right at the end of chapter 11. Uh, it's the subtitle, Leukemia. Right at the end of chapter 11. Uh, and it looks like, for sure, next week we are all done. Last session will be next week. Anywho, uh, the number to dial, 760-569-7676. The code is 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six. The code is five six four nine four three. Once you dial that number and put in the code, press star six. If you would like to participate, you'll hear the audio prompt, then press the number one. If you want to use the free flash phone, just put in the address tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. That address again is tiny t i n y dot c c forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, look for the link on the left side of the page. It says free flash phone. Click it. It will open a small window on your screen. The top line, it's a drop down menu. Just pick out the number that I just gave out, which again is seven, six, zero, five, six, nine, seven, six, seven, six. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is five, six, four, nine, four, three. The final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a nickname, press random keys. If you're comfortable with your real name, that's fine too. Uh, Once you get all that secured, click the green button at the bottom. Uh, It will connect you to the broadcast. You should be able to hear us live. It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. You'll hear the audio prompt. Press one. You will get your hand and you will be on the line. Uh, quickly, for the folks who listen to the archive of the fifth study session that we had last Friday, um, the live broadcast was fine, but just the archive, uh, I made an error uh, for the second audio segment. Um, I put in the wrong clip, so if you listen to the archive, uh, it's fine. It's just the, uh, or it's not fine, it's just the second audio clip. Uh, it's the wrong one. I corrected it, so if you download or listen to what have you, Uh, If you noticed a problem or what have you, that's what it was, but it has been taken care of. And again, this is only for the archive. The live broadcast was fine. I just made an error when I was selecting the audio clip for the archive. 
that being said, we should be ready to roll. Uh, everybody who has a hand up, your line should be open. Uh, feel free to share thoughts on the text, what we've heard in the first segment. Greetings. Greetings. It never ceases to amaze me when white people do all of this killing and at the same time evoke some uh, some creator that's supposed to be against the very violence that they speak of, but they've managed to manipulate uh, this religion and uh, make it work for them. Uh, that's why I don't call it Christianity. I call what they do white supremacy as a religion. Uh, it never fails. I can recall watching on the news as a child uh, a uh, person in military garb uh, giving the uh, crucifix to a B-52 bomber taking off to go drop bombs on people. Uh, it, I mean, just a uh, stark contrast in itself. But then again, it may not be a contrast. You know, I mean, because as I... As I uh, think about it, it all works hand in hand on what they do. They're very well organized, very well organized, uh, very well codified in what they say and what they do. Uh, unfortunately for non-white people, uh, the, uh, all of the organization and, and codification is earmarked to subjugate and or mistreat non-white people. Uh, every now and then, uh, gang leaders uh, get into squabbles, and uh, uh, in this case, these white gangsters uh, sometimes harm each other. But uh, I would say probably after uh, uh, August of 1945, they haven't been doing that uh, too much. Uh, and it's been steadily on non-white people. And this this uh, book gives a a, a good a good uh, insight on that on that behavior. I studied war war history ever since I was a child, and even on the job that I was on, uh, there were a lot of uh, Vietnam combat veterans, as well as all of the war. The easiest way to get a job on the fire department is to have some kind of military experience. So you saw all of these white guys. Uh, coming uh, from the military and, and getting these jobs and whatnot, and you can see the same the same attitude, basically, uh, uh, that uh, I'm listening to, have been listening to uh, with this book. Uh, turning over to the next person. Thank you. Yes, sir. Okay, um, 
my uh, thoughts on this uh, part of the book. Now, I wasn't sure what the uh, tale was confusing me. Um, was she saying that that uh, Chris or the shooter, he the sniper, with, with, that he was crying or crying while reading a book to his son, or uh, or was this a uh, some kind of tasty bit. I think he I was. Got, ma- I got kind of stuck in the. Go ahead, say, say I think it was he was uh, making some sort of recording uh, for the children and or her. I think it was she mentioned both making some sort of recording in case he was killed, and then that he was uh, trying to read something uh, for the children. It, it for me, it's on four seventy seven. She says, "I never played." <clears throat> I never played the video Chris had recorded of himself reading the book for our son. Part of it was the fact that I didn't want to see Chris getting all choked up. I was emotional enough as it was. Seeing him choked up reading to our son would have torn me up more than I already was. And part of it was just feeling on my part anger toward Chris. Maybe uh, you left, you're gone, go. Um, and she goes on to talk there. But that's the part you were talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, because I was thinking to myself, now, when she was giving that speech at the, uh, at whatever convention, she wasn't sounding like she wasn't going whole about what he does. You know, it sounds like she had some reserves and, and uh, that, you know, you, you knew he was a soldier going in, but now all of a sudden you want to play stupid. That's, that's, that's why it's... <laughs> really confusing to me um uh, see I'm, I'm married to a daughter of what we call um navy brat and her father is one has one of the highest rankings for non-commissioned um his wife my mother-in-law uh she knows the deal there is no complaining about it, why you ain't home um all those years when he was gone, all those months he was gone. There's no complaining. It just doesn't make sense. So they knew the deal. And um, that, that part really um, <clears throat> has me confused on, you know, maybe they just had to add some kind of drama to this thing, because it's just hard for me to believe that a white woman's going to be complaining about her husband that she knows is out there supposedly um, doing his job. So <clears throat> that part right there will give me, uh, after going, if I'm going to watch her talk well, about something, if she doesn't sound nothing like what she sounds like in this book, it's, it's, I'm going to be real confused. <clears throat> Let's see what else. Um, the killing of uh, his so-called friend, um, you know, it's very homoerotic uh, is going on already. But I guess you got have a certain closeness that you're going to get to somebody that you're going to claim as a friend uh, in the military. Um, I got, um, I got friends, but. 
I, I it's hard to say that you're going to be really close to people when you're in a military environment. You know, anything can happen anytime. So, I myself uh, was like a, a recluse <laughs> or a curmudgeon. <laughs> um, I had some people that uh, you know acquainted with and talked to, but really get deeply close to them. That did not happen. Um, it only came later until when we were getting, getting ready to get close, uh, getting out of the military is when we really started bonding. And I'm pretty sure that happens to a lot of brothers in the military. It, you know, because you just don't know. You just don't like getting close um, to people um, and being tied up in feelings and stuff. Uh, let's see what else. <sighs> Uh, doggone it. I done lost my train of thought. No, I didn't take notes like I'm supposed to because I'm kind of busy doing other stuff. But so I'll, I'll let somebody else get in on it right now. And maybe I'll get back in and uh, try to add some more stuff. But, all right. Right on. Uh, anybody else that had a hand up uh, have comments they wanted to share? Seeing other hands, I'm not sure if they uh, want to wait and comment later or uh, if they got tied up. Maybe they're just listening. Um, I'll get a few of my observations in, and then uh, if other folks have things that stood out, you can feel free to share. We should have time. Um, I guess I'll pick up uh, Tapello where he was talking about some confusion. I mentioned this last week about just the sh- the way that the text is structured. Uh, I noted last week there were at least two different spots where they insert commentary from Taya, and it seems so unrelated to what Kyle is talking about. Like, there's no transition to how we got here at all. It's just like, you know, you got him. Yep, we were out. The the infestation of savages and these, you know, ROEs and, and I killed two at the same time and we were competing and we were killing the savages and yeah, boom, boom, boom. And Taya, life was <laughs> it's just like, wait a minute, why is it? I, maybe they did that on purpose, but I've noted uh, at, this is at least the third or fourth time uh, in the text where it just seems like an interruption, like the transition is just very abrupt um, and it even can make it a little jarring in terms of just uh, reading comprehension. Uh, That being said, where she's talking about all of this, uh, some of her resentment, uh, we heard that last week where she was talking about, you know, you're going, I think last week it was, he was talking about how much he loved Biggles. Uh, He's talking about this tubby white guy. You just had to love him and he would do anything for us. And she had just left off saying, you know, this is ridiculous. Uh, I'm pregnant. We got children and you're going back to do this. And you're really letting me know a lot about, you know, the value of being a white father, new father and a white husband. You got a white wife at home and you want to go off and piss on your white comrades and drink vodka and run around and kill savages. I mean, wow, that's your priority. Um, but uh, it, to me, it just, and this, this is another one, the one where you said it was confusing for you where she's talking about, you know, I don't want any of your crappy videos uh, where you talk about how much, you know, we mean <laughs> to you when you didn't spend any time with us, you spent your time running around with a gun, shooting savages and whatnot. Right. It's just 
Right. I, maybe they did that. I'm even, you know, trying to conceive. Maybe they did that on purpose to contrast. And that's why I asked before, why do we think Taya was included? Why have this here at all? I, you know, I think some people commented on that. I think it, you know, is to help humanize him uh, with all of this running around and killing and, and making a competition about it and joking about it uh, that some people might think, hey, this guy's a psychopath. Like Bill Maher even said last week on uh, his show, you might have more and more people saying that if you don't have that in. I know from people that have commented about the movie, the big trailer is the one where you got his pregnant wife, Taya, on the phone with him walking out of the hospital, and then he's under attack. That's the one that I've seen the most, and that's the one that people, the moment in the movie that I've heard so many people uh, talking about. And I said, I don't even think that's true. I think they probably just made that up, you know, to elicit that sort of emotional response. Uh, some of the other things that stood out uh, for me in the section this week. Um, I'm so glad we read this book. The male that you heard that was talking from the organization that was uh, reporting that there had been all of these threats against uh, Arabs, non-white people as a result of this film. Uh, and he said that he hadn't seen the movie and that, you know, compromised what he could say or how he could relate it all. Hey, we can say we read the book i read or i've seen the movie i posted the link online the caller that dialed in last week i put the link on my facebook page so hey we watched the movie read the book read many many reports about him i've seen his interview on book tv bill o'reilly conan o'brien we did the research when we come to our conclusions about this book uh it also stood out for me um the homoeroticism i've said that that plays throughout the book uh, where he says when they were working with the army and he says that they gave us the in-law suite. <laughs> I mean, that just kind of stuck out to me that, that we would even be talking about this in those kind of uh, sexualized terms. Uh, and it's it's a lot of that. And again, maybe maybe I could let that go if you didn't have the part in there about, you know, them enjoying pissing on each other and the joke that was in the crosshairs about them having these homoerotic, uh, homoerotic pranks that they were playing on each other and them before they before chris kyle's married he's with his white male comrades and they strip him naked and are stuffing ice in his uh on his growing and painting i mean it's just so much of that over and over that any of that sticks out now um also them even the use of the term badass uh, i thought is another one it's just constant focus to the anus and genital area um, also thought it was a Welsing moment, them talking about the, uh, smoking some, uh, cigars, that that was one of the things that they enjoyed Cuban cigars. Even, uh, Dr. Welsing has a whole chapter on that in the book, the, uh, symbolism of smoking objects. Uh, I heard it this week. I heard it last week as well. And it really comes across, uh, in Lone Survivor, which I was able to watch, um, that was brought up last week. The, the notion that we are the supreme fighting force like we are master killers and we're going up against an inferior opposition like enjoying that you know this is such a lopsided fight that we're gonna go in here and just blast them away like we we're just killing this infestate like you're not even killing people like we're just stepping on ants uh it seems that that really is the way that they're thinking about this um, and I mean, even even that in and of itself just reveals the layers of pathology and that you have legions of people. This film, as you heard uh, in the clip, uh, white people are reporting this is looking like it's going to register as the most successful 
war film ever. That is, I mean, wow. That, in my opinion, wow. that means it's got to reveal a lot about the nature of white pathology. Uh, and I would say, particularly when you put it together with the book, you get a lot. Uh, the hazing, we talked about that. They keep blasting Florida A&M. Uh, and I think they just uh, had a black male. He was sentenced to like six years for hazing. And, and I mean, they really just made uh, Florida A&M University like the poster child. This is the essence of the hazing problem. Black people, whites have been doing this forever. And this is not presented in the book in any way, shape or form as though this is abusive behavior, as though there's anything incorrect. This is great. This helps you be humble. This helps you know, you know, who's going to hop in to defend his brother at arms or sister at arms. And who's going to be over whimpering in the corner. This is, you know, great for all of us. We're in this together. And I mean, this is not presented as criminal activity. Abuse, bullying, since that's the current, you know, popular way. This is not presented in that way at all. Uh, and I even thought it was so profound where he was saying uh, affection when they were doing this bullying, terrorism, even beating up their own friendly fire, if you will. Uh, and he says that uh, we gave him a, a, a dose of affection as well, where affection is even yeah. equated to abuse and violence. Everything is about violence, uh, particularly against non-white people. To me, it almost seemed like another representation uh, of Dr. Marimba Ani's concept in Yoruga, where she says that the nature of the pathology of whites is so massive that if they didn't have niggers, if they didn't have savages to terrorize, they'd be terrorizing each other. And you even see that right there where they talk. There's so much talk about frustration, the rules of engagement. Just let us do our thing. Go out and kill any of these savages with a Quran. Let me put a bullet in them right now. And, you know, you tell us you get us all amped up to go fight and then we can't do it. If they did not have that outlet to be able to go and kill especially black people, non-white people, they would be doing it to themselves. Uh, and you see that. Yeah. Uh, some of the other things that stood out, uh, and I did have a question I wanted to ask uh, for the folks listening in as well. Um, retribution, man, the scene, the little sub-segment payback where he's upset, his white comrade has been uh, killed. It's like whites are the only group that it is acceptable to seek vengeance whites are the only group where it's acceptable it's justified it's even god ordained retribution is all everybody else is supposed to be about turn the other cheek forgive and forget you sound so angry why why can't you just let that go that happened along to everybody else that's the perspective you're supposed to take whites are the only ones absolutely not it is about payback <laughs> they did and and it's not even equal payback like they killed one white person so we got to go kill 50 or uh, 5000 uh, it doesn't matter if we right. get you know the exact person who did this incorrect and it, it might not even have been that somebody did anything wrong these people are, are engaging in self-defense in my view but no matter like any perceived wrong or imagined wrong we are just anything we want to do whatever we think is just right on and that should not be condemned you're being a patriot you're being an american uh that's the, and that stands out huge for me in uh in lone survivor different uh but referenced in this book as well brought up from last week uh also thought um hey, yes that's real quick mm-hmm. uh, before you go keep going uh another thing i wanted to remember um i was confused on a part where he got the house wrong was was it that 
was it that the people that ran out the back was they surges and he got the wrong house or people that ran from from the house room because he was at the wrong house. I, I was confused there too. Uh, I think it was that they, let me see, make sure I'm on the correct page. I thought it was just that they went into, uh, like the wrong building. Like they were, they should have been a bit over, but I'll double check to make sure I didn't, uh, misinterpret, uh, the reading looks like this is chapter 11. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, Meanwhile, standing quietly to one side, this is on uh, 507, 507. Meanwhile, while standing quietly to one side was a man we thought was the father. But once we settled her concerns about her son, the mother made it clear she didn't know who the asshole was. It turned out he had just run in, only pretending to live there. So we had one of our squirters, courtesy of the Air Force. I suppose I shouldn't tell that story without giving myself up. The house where the men ran from was actually the third house we hit that night. I had led the boys to the first. Excuse me. I led the boys to the first. We were all lined up outside getting ready to breach in when our OIC raised his voice. Something doesn't look like he said. I'm not feeling this. I craned my head back and glanced around. Shit, I admitted I took you all to the wrong house. We backed out and went to the right one. Did I ever hear the end of that rhetorical question? So yeah, I think they just went to the wrong building at first and then they got it corrected. Okay, so the guy that they were chasing, he claimed he was the right guy or he ended up being the wrong guy? I'm still... It's from the initial narrative where they go in and, and smack this uh, non-white person around who apparently had some mental uh, problems. Right. Um, that one of the people there, I guess they're saying, was a quote-unquote squirter, an insurgent, one of the people that had been running out of the house that they were looking at before they coordinated their attack. Um, but I guess he's saying in this story that they didn't get the correct house where the people, were, I guess, were fleeing or where they were at until they went to the third house, that initially they went to the incorrect house, which is not where the savages that they were looking for were held up. Yeah, I guess I'm still having a problem because... <clears throat> They, I mean, it's like none of these guys that he's engaged in are, were ever engaged with him and retreating from the engagement. You know what I'm saying? It's like they're just kicking down doors and these guys are insurgents. You know? And it's like, <laughs> like you don't know who is who. What are you talking about? And, 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 and when he brought the rules, yeah, <clears throat> I don't know what to make of that one. What was your opinion about the rules when you started complaining about the rules? I mean, because to me, it, it, to me, it seems like uh, uh, that I'm wondering about the body count. Did it go down after he had to start writing down everything he was doing? Did that slow down his body count? From what he said in the chapter, it seems like the body count went up. He said that they were just slaughtering them. Uh, you know, that it sounds like they were just killing huge numbers of non-white people and figuring out ways to use paper to justify and make it seem that what they were doing was legit. Because uh, he spends all this time talking about covering his ass and how much he hated the rules of engagement and uh, congressmen trying to tell them what to do. Uh, in the war a little bit later on in the chapter, but uh, from what he said directly, that the body count went up, uh, that they were just slaughtering people. Uh, he had said uh, right at the closeout last week, this competition that he's made out of killing people uh, with one of the other snipers, 
uh, that he was losing. But then he got in this position and it, it just took off. Like he hit the jackpot <laughs> being in this new era. So it sounds like, you know, they were just killing huge numbers of folks. And I thought that was important too from last week where, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're talking about, I mean, the, the pathology is so immense. It's hard to grasp. They have made a game out of killing non-white people. I mean, that joking about, like, nobody sees anything incorrect about this. Like, me and Jim, we're racking him up. He's at 100. Oh, bang, bang, bang. I'm at 105. You know, I mean, who does that? Who makes a contest out of killing non-white people? I mean, that is, and this seems apparently like something that has a long history. Whether you go back scalping what they call Indians, even present day, where you've got the uh, police department down in Florida, where they're using photographs of real black people as target practice. And they were doing the same thing. This came out uh, in 2012 when they had uh, targets that you could shoot at where it was a hoodie. I don't know if they had specifically a black person in a hoodie, but it was very explicit that they were doing this to mock the death of Trayvon Martin. And the guy said he was selling out of these. He couldn't, you know, keep them in stock. It was a, a cash cow, pun intended. Um, so, I mean, this is a staple aspect of the religion of white supremacy uh, and something that has even got uh, Lord creator ordained uh, by the God that they serve, which is white supremacy. Um, and just, I thought again, where he's talking about the, uh, the paperwork and everything he said, and this, for me, this is on five eleven. He says, uh, the paperwork got to be such a pain in the ass, uh, anus reference again, that one time when the officer came to ask the details of my shot, I told him it was a kid waving at me. It was a sick joke I made. It was my way of saying, fuck off the red tape of war. And I mean, he, he, I mean, it's almost like him acknowledging, yes, I am a psychopath. I joke about killing kids. <laughs> like uh, this is yeah, this yeah. is my mindset. I don't even want to be around my children. I want to be over here killing non-white people. <laughs> like, that's what I'm about. <laughs> right, right. There's there's one there's one thing that I'm I'm su- surprised that I haven't heard yet uh, in the book. Normally, uh, in in combat that I have read, uh, especially uh, personalized personalized stories like this, there's episodes where white males, just like they do uh, in this part of the world, after they uh, would lynch one of us, cut off body parts, uh, make necklaces out of it, uh, su- uh, souvenirs and whatnot, and so far I haven't heard, heard that uh, yet. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, there was some sort of policy that was demanded, uh, so, uh, uh, politically wise, it wouldn't, uh, bring, uh, some sort of embarrassment on, uh, on, uh, the, the, uh, the army or the military or whatever. But, um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised I haven't heard that, those type of, uh, episodes out of, out of the, uh, the uh, uh, U.S. soldiers, especially the white males, uh, over there. Oh, that's not going to be in a book like this. Like they, uh, I mean, we 
we don't want to have this looking too psychopathic. That's something you would have to get the uh, actual data and, and go do your, you know, okay. stuff. Sure, did happen. It, it def, that's a matter of record, but they're not going to have anything uh, like that. And whether he participated directly or not, but given given his own testimony and him joking about killing kids, you know, hey, I'll let him speak for himself. Um, I did want to, even on that, though, he talks about you would have been crucified if you had broken the rules of engagement by engaging in some of those sorts of behaviors. Um, I have not seen anything to suggest that the whites who participated in Lavina Johnson's death were crucified uh, or the whites who engaged in all of this uh, epidemic rape that goes on. And this is rape of other uh, U.S. personnel. I haven't seen any evidence that these people were crucified. To the contrary, I've seen where it's it's George Zimmerman, it's Darren Wilson all over again. Where it's, I mean, you you have an ice cube in hell before you get an indictment. So I, I think he is just not being truthful. And I again would emphasize, Chris Kyle did not write this book. Um, this is is Scott uh, McCune uh, and the other white person uh, who put this text together. He did not write this text. I don't even think it would. It's it's correct to call this an autobiography. He just if he even did that, but he, uh, according to his own testimony, he just talked to these people. I don't even think he would have had the capability of writing his own book. He's talking about not even wanting to write the reports up for the people that he's killed. So I'm real sure that he wouldn't right. have sat down to write a 500 or 600 page book. So this is not an autobiography. This is just uh, Scott McCune and the other uh, white co-author, their project about Chris Kyle, which absolutely could all be fiction but in at the end of the day in my view reveals a lot about white culture white supremacy uh did anybody else any of the folks that are listening in comments you want to get in we have about yeah 15 minutes a little more uh before we get to the second audio clip feel free chime in 760-569-7676 the code is 564-943-POUND uh, press star six if you would like to participate uh, the question I was going to ask, uh, because he has the segment about working with the army and he says that they got the in-law room or, or compartment when they were with them. And he's talking in glowing terms about they had a great you know, relationship and working with them. Uh, I think folks had said earlier, it seemed like they, unless I'm in error, my memory, uh, that they thought he had presented earlier on in the book a more disparaging view of the army. And people thought that that might have been because uh, maybe there was a higher concentration of black people, non-white people in the army. Uh, it seems like he was pretty uh, laudatory in his comments this week. Uh, if I am remembering correctly, and if folks don't remember that, or if that's not the way they said it, you can correct me. But if that is, is accurate, uh, what do folks think about you know what he has to say about the army in this week's segment? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, it's Tom Smith from New York. I said that before, and um, I think that we're in Afghanistan now. We're, we're to the point where these are the dedicated soldiers, you know. These are the ones that's on their five, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth tour, and um, I'm, I'm pretty sure the majority of those dedicated soldiers are white. So at this point, he's dealing with the mostly white army. I mean, that's that's what I think. Um, I had some um, comments to make, um, if I can. Oh yes, sir. Um, you asked another question, um, you know, about Taya being injected, and um, I, I said it several times, I think the book is propaganda, and I think they inject his wife. Um, so this, cause what they're doing, I, what I think is showing the woman reader, the female reader, 
you know, that this is something that can be done. You know, you're going to have some problems. It's going to be some bumps in the road, but, you know, just hang in there. You know, your husband's doing his duties. You know, just listen to all these stories about what he what's, what's really going on over there. I mean, I really think that that's why they injected um you know, so she's she's dealing with the problems with her own. She's raising the two kids. I mean, they're just fine, you know. You know, they're able to inject that logic into the female reader. That's what I think. Um, I also agree with what you said about um, if white people didn't have non-white people, they would destroy each other. Um, uh, when you look at a real scale of the the globe, or if you, you put in a real scale of the map in Google and um, see the actual size of the countries, not the, the, the map that we've always learned growing up and taught in school, even to this day my kids are still taught with the map that doesn't show the full scale of the countries. Europe is really small, and I can't imagine how a little continent like that, which is you know just really a part of Asia, but it has so many countries. I mean, that just shows you the level of dedication and hate they have for each other. I mean, practically everywhere else before they came didn't have borders and lines. I mean, they create that that conflict wherever they go, that 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 civil, you know, I mean, if they didn't have non-white people, there's no way you could have had all those leaders marching in solidarity in France. Um, I mean, it just wouldn't happen. Um I think that um, um, once again, I'm gonna say, man, this this the, the kill count I'm at is way higher than what the 160 or whatever they give him. I mean, it's he's killing people left and right. It's, it's just I, I don't I don't see how they go by that. And um um these they they give them. I mean, it sounds like they're the cops. You know, they they let them you know pretty much write a report. And I can't believe that. I've never heard of this before. We have to be the the only country to walk around giving reports on people you kill at war. Like this is how many people y'all were killing that were innocent that you have to now start making reports to show that the people you're killing is the bad guy. And I mean, I still to this day, I mean, unless someone could could tell me I'm wrong, I haven't seen anyone brought up on war crimes. So all this writing down your kills, I don't see how that was really accurate. Because um, I, I know for sure this guy um, had to kill people that weren't um, insurgents, savages, you know, just regular people. Um, so I just don't agree with that. Um, he, he said in the book um, they failed, um, the, 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 after they did all this killing, the, the tribes now on the outside wanted to negotiate with them. And what I was thinking was, um, prior to uh, us going over there, there was their own little beefs going on in Afghanistan, so they pretty much just hooked up with the tribes that wanted the people gone. And also what they failed to, to mention, and I, and I haven't heard anyone mention this, is that Afghanistan is the world's largest um, producer of, of opium, Um and right after this war, about what was that, 2001, 2002, 2003, I mean, since then, just look at all the opiate drugs that's been on the market from, um, I mean, just in mass production. Um, there's people that, that, that I think a rapper just died for putting some codeine in a drink. And, and um, some rapper from um, up here in Harlem or, or with ASAP Rocky or whatever, but 
I mean, it's just the, the Percocets and the, the Oxycontin and it, all these drugs. I don't remember existing like it being so available before this war in Afghanistan. This was a huge drug war, um, and it was being fought before we got there. The Karzai, the guy they put in place, his brother and him was having the drug war. They're the two biggest heavy opium dealers. His brother until the U.S. killed him um, and put him in place as the the president. Those were the two largest opium dealers in the world. Um, they were pretty much um, in the, the largest country, the country with the most heroin addicts is Russia. And Russia's right there. I mean, they were supplying Russia left and right. Um, uh, what he said, um, he kept saying when the guys get killed, you know, these are his boys, you know. He, it sounded like, you know, like how I would say, you know, my son, you know, my boy. It wasn't like, you know, my boys, like my homeboys. It was like he had this, um, this, this connection to him, these guys that he certainly didn't have for his own kids. I mean, you know, my boys got killed, and um, that was pretty much all I, all the notes I had. Um, I have did a little observation based off of the book from the the time when uh, he met his wife and um, the tight leather pants, and um, I, I think I wrote you. I said, you know, ever since I've been in in high school, you know, white white men love white women that wear tight black leather pants. And I, I just, you know, as I as you as you read a few times the things that you read on the show that I wrote, um, I, I'm a cigarette smoker, so I stand outside my building at work and I'll just observe and sit back and watch how they can't help but resist, you know. They, they see a, a female, walk, a white female, walk past in tight leather pants. It's like, you know, um, when, when, when black people see a, a chick walk past in some tight jeans, I mean, they can't help but look. They won't look at anything else, but they'll look at that. And I'm wondering if it's that black skin, that 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 feeling of the black skin. But that was just a, a experiment I've been doing, and I've, I've I haven't seen one time where they haven't broke their neck to turn around and see, you know, what what it looked like, you know. Um. um lastly, I also watched that movie Lone Survivor, and I thought that was the the fakest movie I ever saw in my life. Is it just didn't make sense? It wasn't logical to me. Um any of it um you know from the the shooting sequences to the the reason the, the way they got involved in the conflict you know i don't see chris kyle letting people go <laughs> you know some herders they one of them had a walkie-talkie that would have been all he needed to justify that kill and um the, you know these guys being shot multiple times with ak-47s Impossible. One shot in the head, talking about, hey, am I shot in the head? I mean, with an AK-47? Impossible. It just was such propaganda. I don't believe any of it. And, I, and what I got from it was the purge, um, you know, um, trying to help non-white people. And look what happened. That's what I got from it. And um, I'll mute my line. Marky Mark. Mark Wahlberg. Keep that in mind for his... <laughs> Pardon talk that's going on right now. I just was going to say real quick on that heron thing. Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, folks, you know, want to think about that. That was another one where whites whined and cried, and they still talk about him since the Hunger Games uh, just had their third installment. Uh, but when his heroin overdose uh, from last year, right around this time, was the day before the Super Bowl. And uh, then they had that big report in the New York Times about up in New England 
that it was tons of white people uh, addicted to heroin uh, and that this has become a huge problem. Uh, You got all these white people that connecting the dots might be another aspect of all of this and even some white people uh, getting stomped out. Um, The person uh, at 6492, did you have anything you wanted to get in as well? You should be with us. Good evening. Uh, Yes, just a couple things. I I watched the movie on your link. I'm so glad you linked it because I definitely hated the movie. The book, at least the book, I could get some clarity out of it. But, you know, the movie was long and tedious. And, you know, it's almost like that other one, that zero down 40 or whatever. Um, You know, I I don't understand what what they're trying to do other than the propaganda, I guess. And then I and I saw Chris Kyle on Book TV, and uh, it was it was really interesting. His accent his was um, not as um, profound as the gentleman he has reading, and you know you can barely detect it. But they had him sitting. I don't know if you've seen it, but they, he's sitting straight up in the chair. It's almost like he's been injured. You know, he had that you know baseball cap with his little logo on. And, and a, a jacket, and it was a real tight shot, like from his shoulders up, and he barely moved. And uh, but he he just didn't really give out any more information than what we've gotten on the um, you know from the book or from the movie. He just you know kept basically sticking to the same line, and um, you know about how hard it was, and you know what they, they did, what they had to do. And um, and, to, and I'm saying that and getting to the last thing I had to say. I was listening to Armstrong Williams this afternoon driving home, and he was talking about how horrible it is, how they're treating, you know, just uh, this movie about an American hero. He's doing, he was doing the right thing for America, out there fighting for our country. And, uh, and I'm, I'm listening, it's like, I said, maybe he hasn't seen the movie, maybe he hasn't read the book, but he had some co-hosts, and they were all piping in there, too, that these are the kind of people we need. These are the real Americans. So. But, uh, but I don't know. It's just like craziness. And I have crazy Twitter people that are saying the same thing, violence, shoot people. Um, you know, they're, they're, I don't know why. I have this book that I just started reading. It is, the, what is it called? The White... The Iceman's uh, Survival or something. Iceman Inheritance. Yeah. Inheritance. That's it. Yeah. And I'm like, it, I said, but this really talks about how these people behave. You know, that, and, and it kind of explains, and that's kind of how they take over the world through deception. They just pretend that they're so nice and kind, and the next thing you know, they're slaughtering people by the thousands. And... There, there must be some sort of thing in their personality where they can do this, and it has it, it. It doesn't impact them at all. They can just pretend like it never happened. Like right now, they whitewash everything. All of them, the um, you know, all of, all the ancient Africans, they were really white people. All the ancient Egyptians were really white people, so they can be proud of the things that they didn't create. And so, you know, so so I think it's. I don't know, the, um, the gentleman that, that wrote the book thinks it's uh, almost like he described it as a genetic flaw that, that's in these people. But, but it makes you wonder, you know, when you 
you know, if you ask me a week or so ago why I interact with them on Twitter, and, and you know what, because this is what I see. You know, you, you know, I ask them questions, and it's like they give me these crazy answers, you know. I, I want to empty a um, clip into, I would have emptied a clip into Mike Brown just because, you know. You know, you're not making any sense, you know. You try, you try to talk to them like, okay, this is a police officer. Their job is to bring people to justice, not the judge, jury, and executioner. They don't want to hear that. They want to just kill people. So, so, um, so this book kind of aligns up with that, and thank you for picking it, um, Gus, because I never would have read it. I never would have saw the movie, but it's definitely been an eye-opener, and I will mute. My life. Uh, anybody else have a quick word they want to get in before we get to the second audio segment? Great. I will assume folks are satisfied if you are listening and you didn't get an opportunity to share just jot down your comments and we should have ample time once the second audio clip concludes uh dr welsing should be here on sunday so you should be thinking all of us myself included uh you know if you were going to point out one specific passage or or something that you would like to hear her uh, thoughts about this text and or film uh, kind of have that in mind because that's uh, definitely want to bring this up uh, to see her thoughts. I spoke with her about it in December, but at that time I hadn't seen the film and we hadn't started the book study session yet. I just knew that all this I knew this was going to be big, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. So make a note about that as well. We can share. All right. So we're picking back up. We are at almost the very end of chapter 11. For me, it's 518, page 518. The subheading is Leukemia on 518. Uh, We will be right back after this segment concludes. Context of white supremacy. Leukemia. Her daughter is sick. Her white blood cell count is very low. I held the phone a little tighter as Taya continued to talk. My little girl had been sick with infections and jaundice for a while. Her liver didn't seem to be able to keep up with the disease. Now the doctors were asking for more tests, and things looked real bad. They weren't saying it was cancer or leukemia, but they weren't saying it wasn't. They were going to test her to confirm their worst fears. Taya tried to sound positive and downplay the problems. I could tell just from the tone of her voice that things were more serious than she would admit, until finally I got the entire truth from her. I am not entirely sure what all she said, But what I heard was leukemia, cancer. My little girl was going to die. A cloud of helplessness descended over me. I was thousands of miles away from her, and there was nothing I could do to help. Even if I'd been there, I couldn't cure her. My wife sounded so sad and alone on the phone. The stress of the deployment had started to get to me well before that phone call in September 2006, The loss of Mark and Ryan's extreme injuries had taken a toll. My blood pressure had shot up, and I couldn't sleep. Hearing the news about my daughter pushed me to my breaking point. I wasn't much good for anyone. Fortunately, we were already winding down our deployment, and as soon as I mentioned my little girl's condition to my command, they started making travel arrangements to get me home. 
Our doctor put through the paperwork for a Red Cross letter. That's a statement that indicates a service member's family needs him for an emergency back home. Once that letter arrived, my commanders made it happen. I almost didn't get out. Ramadi was such a hot zone that there weren't a whole lot of opportunities for flights. There were no helos in or out. Even the convoys were still getting hit by insurgent attacks. Worried about me and knowing I couldn't afford to wait too long, my boys loaded up the Humvees. They set me in the middle and drove me out of the city to TQ Airfield. When we got there, I nearly choked up handing over my body armor and my M4. My guys were going back to war, and I was flying home. That sucked. It felt like I was letting them down, shirking my duty. It was a conflict, family and country, family and brothers in arms, that I never really resolved. I'd had even more kills in Ramadi than in Fallujah. Not only did I finish with more kills than anyone else on that deployment, but my overall total made me the most prolific American sniper of all time, to use the fancy official language. And yet, I still felt like a quitter, a guy who didn't do enough. 12. Hard Times Home I caught a military charter, first to Kuwait, then to the States. I was in civilian clothes, and with my longer hair and beard, I got hassled a bit, since no one could figure out why someone on active duty was authorized to travel in civilian clothes. Which, looking back, is kind of amusing. I got off the plane in Atlanta and had to go back through security to continue on. It had taken me a few days to make it this far, and when I took my boots off, I swear half a dozen people in line nearly keeled over. I'm not sure I've ever gotten through security quite as fast. Taya. He would never tell me how dangerous things were, but I got to the point where I felt like I could read him. And when he told me that his guys were taking him out in a convoy, just the way he told me about it made me fear not only for them, but for him. I asked a couple questions, and the careful responses told me how dangerous his extract was going to be. I felt very strongly that the more people I had praying for him, the better his chances, so I asked if I could tell his parents to pray for him. He said yes. Then I asked if I could tell them why, about the fact that he was coming home and the danger in the city, and he said no. So I didn't. I asked people for prayer, alluded to danger, and gave no further details other than to ask them to trust me. I knew it would be a tough pill to swallow for those few I was asking, but I felt strongly that people needed to pray, and at the same time that I had to adhere to my husband's desire about what was to be shared. I know it wasn't popular, but I felt the need for prayer overrode my need for popularity. When he got home, it seemed to me Chris was so stressed he was numb to everything. It was hard for him to pinpoint how he felt about anything. He was just wiped out and overwhelmed. I felt sad for everything he'd been through, and I felt terribly torn about needing him. I did need him, tremendously, but at the same time, I had to get along without him so much that I developed an attitude that I didn't need him, or at least that I shouldn't need him. I guess it may not make any sense to anyone else, but I felt this strange mixture of feelings all across the spectrum. I was so mad at him for leaving the kids and me on our own. I wanted him home, but I was mad, too. I was coming off months of anxiety for his safety and frustration that he chose to keep going back. I wanted to count on him, but I couldn't. 
His team could, and total strangers who happened to be in the military could, but the kids and I certainly could not. It wasn't his fault. He would have been in two places at once if he could have been, but he couldn't. But when he had to choose, he didn't choose us. All the while I loved him, and I tried to support him and show him love in every way possible. I felt five hundred emotions, all at the same time. I guess I had an undercurrent of anger that whole deployment. We'd have conversations where we talked, and he realized something was wrong. He'd ask what was bothering me, and I'd deny it. And then finally he'd press, and I would say, I'm mad at you for going back, but I don't want to hate you, and I don't want to be mad. I know you could be killed tomorrow. I don't want you to be distracted by this. I don't want to have this conversation. Now, finally, he was back, and all of my emotions just exploded inside me. Happiness and anger all mixed together. Getting better. The doctors performed all sorts of tests on my little girl. Some of them really pissed me off. I remember especially when they took blood, which they had to do a lot. They'd hold her upside down and prick her foot. A lot of times it wouldn't bleed, and they'd have to do it again and again. She'd be crying the whole time. These were long days, but eventually the doctors figured out that my daughter didn't have leukemia. While there was jaundice and some other complications, they were able to get control of the infections that had made her sick. She got better. One of the things that was incredibly frustrating was her reaction to me. She seemed to cry every time I held her. She wanted mommy. Taya said that she reacted that way to all men. Whenever she heard a male voice, she would cry. Whatever the reason, it hurt me badly. Here I had come all this way and truly loved her, and she rejected me. Things were better with my son, who remembered me and now was older and more ready to play. But once again, the normal troubles that parents have with their kids and with each other were compounded by the separation and stress we'd all just gone through. Little things could really be annoying. I expected my son to look me in the eye when I was scolding him. Taya was bothered by this, because she felt he wasn't accustomed to me or my tone, and it was too much to ask a two-year-old to look me in the eye in that situation, but my feeling was just the opposite. It was the right thing for him to do. He wasn't being corrected by a stranger. He was being disciplined by someone who loved him. There's a certain two-way road of respect there. You look me in the eye. I look you in the eye. We understand each other. Taya would say, Wait a minute. You've been gone for how long? And now you want to come home and be part of this family and make the rules? No, sir, because you're leaving again in another month to go back on training. We were both right from our perspectives. The problem was trying to see the others and then live with it. I wasn't perfect. I was wrong on a few things. I had to learn how to be a dad. I had my idea of how parenting should be, but it wasn't based on any reality. Over time, my ideas changed. Somewhat. I still expect my kids to look me in the eye when I'm talking to them, and vice versa. And Taya agrees. Mike Monsoor I'd been home for roughly two weeks when a SEAL friend of mine called and Asked what was up. Nothing much, I told him. Well, who'd y'all lose, he asked. Huh? I don't know who it was, but I heard you lost another. Damn.
I got off the phone and started calling everyone I knew. I finally got a hold of someone who knew the details, though he couldn't talk about them at the moment, because the family had not been informed. He said he'd call me back in a few hours. They were long hours. Finally, I found out Mike Monsoor, a member of our sister platoon, had been killed saving the lives of some of his fellow platoon members in Ramadi. The group had set up an overwatch in a house there. An insurgent got close enough to toss a grenade. Obviously, I wasn't there, but this is the description of what happened from the official summary of action. The grenade hit him in the chest and bounced onto the deck, here the Navy term for floor. He immediately leapt to his feet and yelled grenade to alert his teammates of impending danger, but they could not evacuate the sniper hide site in time to escape harm. Without hesitation and showing no regard for his own life, he threw himself onto the grenade, smothering it to protect his teammates who were lying in close proximity. The grenade detonated as he came down on top of it, mortally wounding him. Petty Officer Monsoor's actions could not have been more selfless or clearly intentional. Of the three seals on that rooftop, he had the only avenue of escape away from the blast and if he had so chosen, he could have easily escaped. Instead, Mansoor chose to protect his comrades by the sacrifice of his own life. By his courageous and selfless action, he saved the lives of his two fellow SEALs. He was later awarded the Medal of Honor. A lot of memories about Mikey came back as soon as I found out he'd died. I hadn't known him all that well because he was in the other platoon, but... I was there for his hazing. I remember us holding him down so his head could be shaved. He didn't like that at all. I may still have some bruises. I drove a van to pick up some of the guys from the airport and helped arrange Mikey's wake. Seal funerals are kind of like Irish wakes, except there's a lot more drinking. Which begs the question, how much beer do you need for a seal wake? That is classified information, but rest assured, it's more than a metric ass ton. I stood on the tarmac in dress blues as the plane came in. My arm went up in a stiff salute as the coffin came down the ramp. Then, with the other pallbearers, I carried it slowly to the waiting hearse. We attracted a bit of a crowd at the airport. People nearby who realized what was going on stopped and stared silently, paying their respects. It was touching. They were honoring a fellow countryman even though they didn't know him. I was moved at the sight, a last honor for our fallen comrade, a silent recognition of the importance of his sacrifice. The only thing that says we're seals are the sealed tridents we wear, the metal insignia that show we're members. If you don't have that on your chest, you're just another Navy puke. It's become a sign of respect to take it off and hammer it into the coffin of your fallen brother at the funeral. You're showing the guy that you'll never forget, that he remains part of you for the rest of your life. As the guys from Delta Platoon lined up to pound their tridents into Mikey's coffin, I backed off, head bowed. It happened that Mark Lee's tombstone was just a few yards from where Monsoor was going to be buried. I'd missed Mark's funeral because I'd still been overseas, and still hadn't had a chance to pay my respects. 
Now it suddenly seemed appropriate to put my trident on his tombstone. I walked over silently and laid it down, wishing my friend one last goodbye. One of the things that made that funeral bittersweet was the fact that Ryan was released from the hospital in time to attend it. It was great to see him, even though he was now permanently blind. Before passing out from blood loss after he'd been shot, Ryan had been able to see. But as his brain swelled with internal bleeding, bone or bullet fragments that were in his eye severed his optic nerves. There was no hope for restoring sight. When I saw him, I asked him why he insisted on walking out of the building under his own power. It struck me as a remarkably brave thing, characteristic of him. Ryan told me he knew that our procedures called for at least two guys to go down with him if he couldn't move on his own. He didn't want to take more guys out of the fight. I think he thought he could have gotten back on his own, and probably he would have if we'd let him. He might even have picked up a gun and tried to continue the fight. Ryan left the service because of his injury, but we remained close. They say friendships forged in war are strong ones. Ours would prove that truism. Punching Out Scruff Face After the funeral, we went to a local bar for the wake proper. As always, there were a bunch of different things going on at our favorite night spot, including a small party for some older SEALs and UDT members who were celebrating the anniversary of their graduation. Among them was a celebrity I'll call Scruff Face, Scruff served in the military. Most people seem to believe he was a SEAL. As far as I know, he was in the service during the Vietnam conflict, but not actually in the war. I was sitting there with Ryan and told him that Scruff was holding court with some of his buddies. I'd really like to meet him, Ryan said. Sure. I got up and went over to Scruff and introduced myself. Mr. Scruffface, I have a young SEAL over here who's just come back from Iraq. He's been injured, but... He'd really like to meet you. Well, Scruff kind of blew us off. Still, Ryan really wanted to meet him, so I brought him over. Scruff acted like he couldn't be bothered. All right. We went back over to our side of the bar and had a few more drinks. In the meantime, Scruff started running his mouth about the war and everything and anything he could connect to it. President Bush was an asshole. We were only over there because Bush wanted to show up his father. We were doing the wrong thing, killing men and women and children and murdering. And on and on. Scruff said he hates America, and that's why he moved to Baja, California. 9-11 was a conspiracy. And on and on some more. The guys were getting upset. Finally, I went over and tried to get him to cool it. We're all here in mourning, I told him. Can you just cool it? Keep it down. You deserve to lose a few, he told me. Then he bowed up as if to belt me one. I was uncharacteristically level-headed at that moment. Look, I told him, why don't we just step away from each other and go our own way? Scruff bowed up again. This time, he swung. Being level-headed and calm can last only so long. I laid him out. Tables flew. Stuff happened. Scruffface ended up on the floor. I left. Quickly. 
I have no way of knowing for sure, but rumor has it he showed up at the Bud's graduation with a black eye. Fighting is a fact of life when you're a SEAL. I've been in a few good ones. In April 07, we were in Tennessee. We ended up across the state line in a city where there'd been a big UFC mixed martial arts fight earlier that evening. By coincidence, we happened into a bar where there were three fighters who were celebrating their first victories in the ring. We weren't looking for trouble. In fact, I was in a quiet corner with a buddy where there was hardly anyone else around. For some reason, three or four guys came over and bumped into my friend. Words were said. Whatever they were, the wannabe UFC fighters didn't like him, so they went after him. Naturally, I wasn't going to let him fight alone. I jumped in. Together, we beat the shit out of him. This time, I didn't follow Chief Primo's advice. In fact, I was still pounding one of the fighters when the bouncers came to break us up. The cops came in and arrested me. I was charged with assault. My friend had slipped out the back. No bad wishes on him. He was only following Primo's second rule of fighting. I got out on bail the next day. I had a lawyer come in and work out a plea bargain with the judge. The prosecutor agreed to drop the charges, but to make it all legal, I had to get up there in front of the judge. Mr. Kyle, she said in the slow drawl of justice, just because you're trained to kill doesn't mean you have to prove it in my city. Get out and don't come back. And so I did, and haven't. That little mishap got me in a bit of trouble at home. No matter where I was during training, I would always give Taya a call before I went to sleep. But having spent the night in the drunk tank, there was no call home. I mean, I only had one call, and she couldn't get me out, so I put it to good use. There might not have been a real problem except that I was supposed to go home for one of the kids' birthday parties. Because of the court appearance, I had to extend my stay in town. "'Where are you?' asked Taya when I finally got a hold of her. "'I got arrested.' "'All right,' she snapped. "'Whatever.' I can't say I blamed her for being mad. It wasn't the most responsible thing I'd ever done. Coming when it did, it was just one more irritant in a time filled with them. Our relationship was rapidly going downhill. Taya I didn't fall in love with a frickin' Navy SEAL. I fell in love with Chris. Being a SEAL is cool and everything, but that's not what I loved about him. If I'd known what to expect, that would have been one thing, but you don't know what to expect. No one does, not really, not in real life. And not every SEAL does multiple back-to-back -back wartime deployments, either. As time went on, his job became more and more important to him. He didn't need me for family. In a way, he had the guys. Little by little, I realized I wasn't the most important thing in his life. The words were there, but he didn't mean it. Fights and more fights I am by no means a badass or even an extremely skilled fighter, but several instances have presented themselves. I would rather get my ass beat than look like a pussy in front of my boys. I've had other run-ins with fighters. I like to think I've held my own. While I was serving with my very first platoon, the whole SEAL team went to Fort Irwin in San Bernardino out in the Mojave Desert. After our training sessions, 
We headed into town and found a bar there, called the Library. Inside, a few off-duty police officers and firemen were having a party. A few of the women turned their attention to our guys. When that happened, the locals got all jealous and started a fight. Which really showed some truly poor judgment, because there had to be close to a hundred of us in that little bar. A hundred seals is a force to be reckoned with, and we did the reckoning that day. Then we went outside and flipped over a couple of cars. Somewhere around there the cops came. They arrested twenty-five of us. You probably heard of Captain's Mast. That's where the commanding officer listens to what you've done and hands out what is called a non-judicial punishment if he thinks it's warranted. The punishments are prescribed by military law and can be anything from a stern tisk-tisk-don't-do-that-again to an actual reduction in grade and even correctional custody, which pretty much means what you think it means. There are similar hearings with less critical consequences, heard by officers below the CO. In our case, we had to go before the XO, executive officer, the officer just below the commander, and listen while he told us in extremely eloquent language how truly fucked up we were. In the process, he read off all the legal charges, all the destruction, I forget how many people got hurt and how much money's worth of damage we caused, but it took a while for him to catalog. He finished by telling us how ashamed he was. All right, he said, lecture over. Don't let it happen again. Get the hell out of here. We all left, duly chastised, his words ringing in our ears for a good five seconds or so. But the story doesn't end there. Another unit heard of our little adventure, and they decided that they should visit the bar and see if history would repeat itself. It did. They won that fight, but from what I understand the conditions were a little more difficult. The outcome wasn't quite so lopsided. A little after that, yet another military group soon had to train in the same area. By now, there was a competition. The only problem was that the folks who lived there knew there would be a competition, and they prepared for it. They got their collective asses kicked. From then on, the entire town was placed off-limits for SEALs. You might think it'd be tough to get into a drunken brawl in Kuwait, since there really aren't any bars where you can drink alcohol, but it just so happened that there was a restaurant where we liked to eat, and where, not so coincidentally, it was easy to sneak in alcohol. We were there one night and started to get a little loud. Some of the locals objected. There was an argument, which led to a fight. Four of us, including myself, were detained. The rest of my boys came over and asked the police to release us. No way, said the police. They're going to jail and stand trial. They emphasized their position. My boys emphasized theirs. Kuwaitis finally saw it their way and released us. I was arrested in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, though I think in that case the circumstances may speak well of me. I was sitting in the bar when a waitress passed with a pitcher of beer. A guy at a table nearby pushed his chair back and bumped into her, not knowing she was there. A little bit of beer spilled on him. He got up and slapped her. I went over and defended her honor the only way I know how. That got me arrested. Those granolas are tough when it comes to fighting with women. Those charges, like all the others, were dismissed.
the Sheriff of Ramadi. The Ramadi Offensive would eventually be considered an important milestone and turning point in the war, one of the key events that helped Iraq emerge from utter chaos. Because of that, there was a good deal of attention on the fighters who were there, and some of that attention eventually came to focus on our team. As I hope I've made clear, I don't feel SEALs should be singled out publicly as a force. We don't need the publicity. We are silent professionals, every one of us. The quieter we are, the better we are able to do our job. Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. If it were, I wouldn't have felt it necessary to write this book. Let me say for the record that I believe the credit in Ramadi and in all of Iraq should go to the Army and Marine warriors who fought there as well as the SEALs. It should be fairly proportioned out. Yes, SEALs did a good job and gave their blood, but as we told the Army and Marine officers and enlisted men we fought beside, we're no better than those men when it comes to courage and worth. But being in the modern world, people were interested in knowing about SEALs. After we got back, Command called us together for a briefing so we could tell a famous author and former SEAL what had happened in battle. The author was Dick Couch. The funny thing was, he started out not by listening, but by talking. Not even talking. Mr. Couch came and lectured us about how wrong-headed we were. I have a lot of respect for Mr. Couch's service during the Vietnam War, where he served with Navy underwater demolition and SEAL teams. I honor and respect him greatly for that. But a few of the things he said that day didn't sit all that well with me. He got up in front of the room and started telling us that we were doing things all wrong. He told us we should be winning their hearts and minds instead of killing them. Seals should be more SF-like, he claimed, referring, I guess, to one of Special Forces' traditional missions of training indigenous people. Last time I checked... They think it's okay to shoot people who shoot at you, but maybe that's beside the point. I was sitting there getting furious. So was the entire team, though they all kept their mouths shut. He finally asked for comments. My hand shot up. I made a few disparaging remarks about what I thought we might do to the country. Then I got serious. They only started coming to the peace table after we killed enough of the savages out there, I told him. That was the key. I may have used some other colorful phrases as I discussed what was really going on out there. We had a bit of a back and forth before my headshed signaled that I had to leave the room. I was glad to comply. Afterward, my CO and command chief were furious with me, but they couldn't do too much because they knew I was right. Mr. Couch wanted to interview me later on. I was reluctant. Command wanted me to answer his questions. Even my chief sat me down and talked to me. So, I did. Yup. Nope. That was the interview. In fairness, from what I've heard, his book is not quite as negative as I understood his lecture to be. So, maybe a few of my fellow SEALs did have some influence on him. You know how Ramadi was won? We went in and killed all the bad people we could find. When we started, the decent or potentially decent Iraqis didn't fear the United States they did fear the terrorists. The U.S. told them, We'll make it better for you. The terrorists said, We'll cut off your head. Who would you fear? Who would you listen to? When we went into Ramadi, we told the terrorists, We'll cut your head off.
we will do whatever we have to and eliminate you. Not only did we get the terrorists' attention, we got everyone's attention. We showed we were the force to be reckoned with. That's where the so-called Great Awakening came. It wasn't from kissing up to the Iraqis, it was from kicking butt. The tribal leaders saw that we were badasses, and they'd better get their act together, work together, and stop accommodating the insurgents. Force moved the battle. We killed the bad guys and brought the leaders to the peace table. That is how the world works. Knee Surgery I'd first hurt my knees in Fallujah when the wall fell on me. Cortisone shots helped for a while, but the pain kept coming back and getting worse. The docs told me I needed to have my legs operated on, but doing that would have meant I would have to take time off and miss the war. So I kept putting it off. I settled into a routine where I'd go to the doc, get a shot, go back to work. The time between shots became shorter and shorter. It got down to every two months, then every month. I made it through Ramadi, but just barely. My knees started locking, and it was difficult to get down the stairs. I no longer had a choice, so soon after I got home in 2007, I went under the knife. The surgeons cut my tendons to relieve pressure so my kneecaps would slide back over. They had to shave down my kneecaps because I had worn grooves in them. They injected synthetic cartilage material and shaved the meniscus. Somewhere along the way, they also repaired an ACL. I was like a racing car being repaired from the ground up. When they were done, they sent me to see Jason, a physical therapist who specializes in working with SEALs. He'd been a trainer for the Pittsburgh Pirates and then went over to work for the San Diego Chargers. After 9-11, he decided to devote himself to helping the country. He chose to do that by working with the military. He took a massive pay cut to help put us back together. I didn't know all that the first day we met. All I wanted to hear was how long it was going to take to rehab. He gave me a pensive look. This surgery? Civilians need a year to get back, he said finally. Football players? They're out eight months. Seals? It's hard to say. You hate being out of action and will punish yourselves to get back. He finally predicted six months. I think we did it in five, but I thought I would surely die along the way. Jason put me into a machine that would stretch my knee. Every day I had to see how much further I could adjust it. I would sweat up a storm as it bent my knee. I finally got it to 90 degrees. That's outstanding, he told me. Now get more. More? More. He also had a machine that sent a shock to my muscle through electrodes. Depending on the muscle, I would have to stretch and point my toes up and down. Doesn't sound like much, but it is clearly a form of torture that should be outlawed by the Geneva Convention, even for use on seals. Naturally, Jason kept up in the voltage. But the worst of all was the simplest, the exercise. I had to do more, more, more. I remember calling Taya many times and telling her I was sure I was going to puke, if not die, before the day was out. She seemed sympathetic, but, come to think of it in retrospect, she and Jason may have been in on it together. There was a stretch where Jason had me doing crazy amounts of ab exercises and other things to my core muscles. Do you understand it's my knees that were operated on? I asked him one day when I thought I'd reached my limit.
He just laughed. He had a scientific explanation about how everything in the body depends on strong core muscles. But I think he just liked kicking my ass around the gym. I swear I heard a bullwhip crack over my head any time I started to slack. I always thought the best shape I was ever in was straight out of Bud's. But I was in far better shape after spending five months with him. Not only were my knees okay, the rest of me was in top condition. When I came back to my platoon, they all asked if I'd been taking steroids. Fantastic. We will wrap things up next week. Uh, for me, we're on 552. Rough times. Rough times. That is the uh, subheading in Chapter 12. Uh, next week, all done. So any final thoughts, if you are able to see the film uh, or Lone Survivor, anything else that you want to include as we uh, conclude, uh, wrap things up next Friday, last study session. Moving on, brand new book in two weeks. Uh, incidentally, Scruffface, that is Jesse Ventura, folks who've been following, uh, he won his lawsuit uh, where Chris Kyle, if you see the interview that Chris Kyle did with Bill O'Reilly, he admitted that Scruffface was Jesse Ventura and he stuck to the story that he, that has been presented in the book written about him. And the court decision came out. Uh, they ruled in favor of Jesse Ventura, former governor, uh, that there was no evidence to support that this actually happened. Uh, that it's likely uh, that Chris Kyle fabricated this whole incident. Uh, and he won uh, a $1.8 million lawsuit. Um, he's given quite a few interviews. I was going to use some of those. There's so much content around this. I'd like, I, I mean, literally, it's like I'll never be able to play uh, all the, the content. They had a big discussion about this on Bill Maher last week where he called him a, a psychopath. But uh, just, this uh, just came out uh, yesterday. Uh, former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura has spoken out against American Sniper, both the movie and Chris Kyle, the Navy SEAL sniper, with the highest... Uh, confirmed kill count in military history. A hero must be honorable, must have honor, and you can't have honor if you're a liar, Ventura told the Associated Press. There is no honor in lying. Ventura, a former Navy SEAL himself, has not seen the Iraq war movie directed by Clint Eastwood and is not planning to. It's as authentic as Dirty Harry, Ventura said, referencing criticism that it falsely depicts the 9-11 terrorist attacks as the cause of the war. Ventura's position is not surprising since he filed a defamation lawsuit against Kyle's estate and won $1.8 million last year. Kyle claims in his book American Sniper, on which the movie is based, that he knocked out a man in a California bar in 2006 for saying the SEALs deserve to lose a few in Iraq. Kyle later identified the character nicknamed Scruffface as Ventura during several media appearances to promote the book. Uh, I will stop there. Uh, it goes on a little bit more, but this is from uh, therap.com. Jesse Ventura slams American sniper Chris Kyle. You can't have honor if you're a liar. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Uh, I'll try and hit the people. If you did not get an opportunity to share the first time around, uh, you should go first. So anybody who had a hand up who did not get to speak uh, during the first segment, feel free. Yes, ma'am. Hey, um, so I was trying to put my son to bed, so I don't know if I heard this correctly. So um, please correct me if I'm wrong. But did I hear uh, the narrator uh, sort of get a little broken up when he was talking about uh, Chris 
Kyle uh, going to his friend's funeral. Was there sort of like a, a crack in his voice, like he was about to cry? I, I, I wasn't sure if I heard that or maybe if I was imagining that, but if that is the case, I thought that that was... <laughs> I don't know. This book is, is so fascinating to me um, in terms of <laughs> the psychology. Uh, there's hardly even any sort of... Uh, sentimentality about, you know, his, his daughter potentially having leukemia, but going to this, this friend, essentially a co-worker's funeral that he's tremendously broken up about it. So I, I don't know. I'm, I hate to say, I, I'm, I'm glad the book is almost over. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, participating in the book club and I really enjoyed doing this for the most part, but this book was really difficult for me. I think that, just the the pathology, the it, it was it was very difficult for me. Um, I think it's very enlightening, um, and I'm I'm glad it was chosen because I certainly, as other callers have said, would have never ever ever picked this book up. Um, but it it's been it's been a challenge. <laughs> so anyway, I'll mute myself. Uh, any other callers with us who didn't get to share before? Can I hear? Yes, ma'am. Good night to all. Um, I have a question. I think the last time uh, Dr. Francis Cress Wilson was on a program, uh, Karma had asked a question about white people urinating on other people, I think specifically non-white people. So I'll be curious to know what the doctor thinks about uh, him saying that they had to unit on each other to keep warm. Um, I also said that, that that also stood out to me with the uh, his daughter having leukemia, and him pretending like he cared, but in the same time he was saying it sucked to go home to see his daughter. Um, also, uh, he had said something about uh, somebody. Uh, some kind of author or something from the the, uh, the Vietnam War was talking to them about uh, saying it was I guess wrong to be killing people, and <laughs> he was like almost like how dare he say this, and um, he had said something about yeah uh, uh, he used some colorful language, and I would I would really like him to like I would really wanted. The, him to like expand on what he said because he was he's already so racist and uses all this racist language I don't know what else he could be saying and um, what else I think I think that's 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 all I have right now oh I want to ask you Gus um in your book is Jesse Ventura name actually in the book. No, because I heard they said something about they removed it. It's not in the book that you have. His he is not actually named, and from my understanding of how this incident has been reported, that he was not actually named in the book ever. He's in the book that I have too, uh, or his name is not, but this incident is there with uh, Scruffface. But it wasn't until he went out and was talking about the book that he went ahead and identified that Scruffface was Jesse Ventura. Um, and I guess the lawsuit went from there. But yeah, I guess I guess I'm assuming that newer books that are being published won't have that incident in them if what you know what I just read is accurate. Because uh, the book that I read, it was it was in the book that I read. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, Jesse Ventura is also um, suing the publishers of that book. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And people, uh, a, a significant number of whites are angry with Jesse Ventura that he filed this suit. Like, how dare you uh, take this money from uh, a white widow, you know, whose who's partner, you know, served and did, you know, all these deployments and how dare you do this? Um, and he pointed out that it's not, she personally is not having to pay this $1.8 million that this, uh, comes from the estate. Um, and he got $3 million just for the book. Lord knows how much of the funds that are being generated at the box office are going to, uh, Taya, Taya Kyle or their family. So I don't think regardless, I don't think they're hurting for, uh, for dollars, but, um, yeah, neither here nor there. Anyone else with us who did not get to share during the first segment, uh, want to get their comments in? Okay. Uh, everyone else, whether you spoke first time or not, if you had any comments you wanted to get in, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, Thomas Smith. Thomas Smith again. Um, I'm calling in. I was going to make a reference to the scruffy part, but now that I see that what that's all about, I won't. Um, um, man, um, <laughs> I agree with the caller, the, the lady who called. Um, she just said that, um, you know, she liked the book, but she's glad it's over. I think I'm getting to that part. I, I think it's revealed a lot about white pathology. But I think, um, you know, it's ran his course. I mean, it's, well, he did a lot. Um, oh, going bar to bar fighting, and all the charges are dropped every time in every country. I mean, in Kuwait, I mean, could you imagine? I mean, he, um, um to the caller earlier, um, he made, finally made a body part reference. Um, you know, he said he wanted to behead the, the Afghanis in one part there. Um, more propaganda, I think, um, him beating up UFC fighters now. I mean, I just, come on. I don't see that. Um, I just don't agree with that. Um, he was able to plea out of the, a charge for assault, uh, you know, cut a deal with the prosecutor. Prosecutor says, all you got to do is go in front of the judge. Judge just says, hey, man, I know you could kill people. Just get out of my town. And he I left and never came back. I mean, it's just so easy. It's just so easy, Jones. Um, what else do I have? Uh, the other, the only other thing I hope that what really stuck out more than anything was he expected a two-year-old child to look him in the eyes. I mean, as a father, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I mean, two years old, that, that terrible tools, and you expect him to stand there and look you in the eyes, and I can see he's probably a child abuser. Uh, a woman abuser. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if um, Taylor wasn't glad he was dead. You know, it's just, whew, every day counting the money, you know, thank God. I endured it and it's over. She's probably happy every time he left. I mean, he, he seems like he's not a human, like he's not a, a real person. Like a two-year-old child, you expect them to stand there and look you in the eyes. That's that's white pathology and, and I, I don't have anything else to say. 
I found it interesting when he said he's not even human when he compared himself to a car. <laughs> he said he's gonna build them up. Hmm, I didn't even really pick up on that one. Wow, unbelievable. Yeah. And he was also rioting. He, he was rioting. He said he flipped over some cars, right? Mm-hmm. After he, <laughs> after he fought, he flipped over some cars. Like I'm like, wow, like nothing happened. Just he just riot and that's it, and just like go home. Stu's like, a, he's a maniac. He's just like white. You guys said white pathology just out there. Yeah, I I, I noticed. Uh... Uh, with all of the killing that he uh, did, and uh, uh, I didn't take account in the book, but I did recall that he killed uh, several several children along the way. And so, why should he expect that his child or children have good health, or even worse, die in the process? Uh, I, I think somewhere during the book uh, that uh, one of his children was sick. Uh, other than that, uh, it was something else I was thinking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, Clint Eastwood directed the movie, right? Yes, Is that sir. correct? Yes, sir. Uh, just to uh, pile on, uh, the suspect, the suspiciousness that uh, the book is a lot of fantasy involved, uh, the, the, the character... Uh, Clint Eastwood actually played a uh, fictional Medal of Honor winner uh, that received this medal uh, from uh, acts that he uh, did, uh, I believe, during the Vietnam War. He started off in Korea. Uh, the, the movie primarily uh, was about his uh, escapades and uh, what was that, that, uh, that, a smaller conflict that took place uh, uh, in the Caribbean uh, uh, in the 1980s, I believe. Panama Invasion. No, that was the... Uh, no, no. Guam? Guam? Uh, no, not Guam. I would, I would know if somebody said it, but it, it, it was he did a movie. And, and what it reminded me of all of these fights all this drinking, it, 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 he probably was an alcoholic. I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic, this guy. Uh, and uh, because of the pattern he, uh, in this book where he uh, reportedly was get, uh, drinking and then fighting, drinking and then fighting, and then, then getting off. Uh, well, the same thing took place with uh, the character that Clint Eastwood was playing in this movie. Uh, I mean, the exact same things where he was fighting, getting into in fights and getting arrested and going to, it goes to a judge or a judge, uh, dismiss charges, so on and so forth. And, you know, he gets back into the hands of, of, uh, his, uh, military representatives and they kind of like just smack him on hand. Well, this movie that he had, he played, he played the role of a, of a, Yes, yes, that's it. I, I know, I know, Gus, you would get it after a while. Uh, but yeah, Heartbreak Ridge, it, it, it smacks of that a little bit. I, 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 I don't go to the movies to see them, but the, the, the movie, the, this movie is always on uh, over the last, I guess, 10 years or so. 
And uh, was it Domingo? Patty? Was it was the island Saint Domingo? Oh, hold on, hold on. Say that again. Saint Domingo. Was that the name of the island? No, no. I, I, I would know it if somebody said. I just can't think. Uh, uh, actually, the, the the and the the troops that he killed in the movie were from Cuba. I just can't think of the name. I just can't think of the name of the place. Not, Is this exactly, Panama? Just, no, no. Panama. It was somewhere in the Caribbean. The head of state was a non-white black male. The whole country is non-white. I'm sure we'll we'll get yeah. down the road. <laughs> at any rate, um, there are uh, other other things that uh, stood out. Uh, our caller in Florida, retired firefighter. No, that 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 basically was it on 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 uh, when I when it it, it, it kind of like when I when I kept hearing this in the book about uh, his his bar fights, this character that the director of the movie. And I, I I haven't seen the movie, and I'm not gonna go to the movie, to the movie to see that that crap anyway. <laughs> but but uh, uh, but but anyway, uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, who was the director, he he had similar episodes of a, of, of a of a character in a, in a movie doing the same thing. So it, it kind of like gives me an idea, man. You know you know if if if, if this movie director is doing this, and the same thing happened in books. As far as you know, a little bit of fans just to spruce things up a little bit, you know, to to, to keep people's interest, you know. And I, I can see that out of, out of white guys, they 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 like that kind of stuff, you know. I can I can I can sex the women and and kill people and then go in the bars and and and, and bar fight and 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 don't go to jail for it and and go back out again because they give me a break because I'm a hero and you know just a whole lot of chest swelling. You know, all over the place. You know, just dripping with it, and, and I can see why it made a lot of money. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I can, I have, an, I have an idea of what type of people would, would probably go see the thing about three or four times. You know, so. Granada. That's just probably. I think that was the island, but uh... yes, yes, that's it, Granada. That's it. <laughs> that's what I was gonna say, Maurice Bishop. <laughs> that's it. Maurice Bishop. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yep. That's it. That's it. That that's what the episodes in the in the in, in his movie was centered around. Ended up being centered around. That, in other words, that was this longtime soldiers, last hurrah, and and and, and, and the, the character that Clint Eastwood played. Although the the, the the book and this movie is not exactly like, but I can see him. I can see him blending. Blending that character, that, that fictional character, with this real life person, and creating an image, you know, which is something that 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 you know, phony, phony uh, Hollywood does anyway. You know, I mean, who? I mean, why, why wouldn't they induce that into books? The same thing they have, you know, with uh, the cinema screen. You know, I mean, it it is it is because the whole idea is to sell books. Awesome, you know. So I don't need it when I'm reading a book, but but a lot of people, you know, you know, would would need stuff like that in order to uh, keep them interested. I guess. 
Hello? Yes, that's all. Right on. Uh, ma'am, we heard you as well. Do you have comments you want to get in? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, good evening, everyone. I don't mean to deviate from the content of the, um, the, the book for, for now, but it, it is regarding Chris Cow. Um, and forgive me if this has already been spoken about before, but I understand that he killed some people in, uh, in, during the Katrina, uh, tragedy. And I'd like to know if anyone has any information about that. Like, I don't know, what was the circumstance behind that? Was he part of the mercenaries that were there? Um, does anyone know? The reports that I've read, um, I think, like, way back some weeks ago, we touched on that. But there are several reports where he also bragged, much like he bragged about having uh, assaulted uh, former Governor Ventura, that he... Uh, there's one report I saw where he said that his friends were on the Superdome shooting uh, black looters during Katrina. And then there's a different wow. one where he says it was him uh, on the Superdome shooting black looters. Uh, and the Washington Post, they have a big report where they investigated this claim and they saw no evidence mm-hmm. that this was true. And there are several other mainstream outlets who checked into this because he you know, apparently told this to several folks. Uh, to say, yeah, we heard him say this, but there's no evidence to support this. And they, uh, the Washington Post piece, they even had that he had several claims like this, uh, where he said that uh, some people tried to carjack him in Texas and he killed them, uh, where people couldn't substantiate wow. that either. Um, the bodies, no aspect of it, uh, where people were just saying that, at the, just like Governor Ventura said, this guy is a liar. Uh, and so you just got lots and lots of these different stories that people think are just that they are total fabrications. They are not true at all. Uh, but there's a big piece in the Washington post that's specifically focused about that. And they, not that I don't think it could be true. Cause I mean, there was a lot of that going on, but they, they think that this guy just told a lot. And even either way, if he did it that, again, that doesn't surprise me. They got whole reports about black people being slaughtered and killed all the way up to what Cynthia McKinney said. Mm-hmm. But if he didn't exactly. do it and he just lied and made that up, that again, I mean, what kind of pathology is that that I want to lie so that I can pretend brag about shooting black people during Katrina? I mean, that is ama- either way, it reveals a lot about mm-hmm. what it means to be white. Yes, thank you. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. You know, I thought it was interesting when they mentioned that, you know, he got into all this trouble fighting, and but, you know, miraculously the charges get dropped. And I just wonder how many, you know, white males or white people in general, is that what happens? You know, George Zimmerman, they dropped the charges again with him. You know, they, they criminalize black people because we end up in prison, because they stop and frisk us and all these other things. But when they do something, they can easily get out of it. But they don't remember or something. I don't know what happens. Do they just destroy all the paperwork or or what happens? But it doesn't really follow them. It doesn't stop them from getting employment. You know, the the one that um, killed Tamir Rice had been fired, I think, three or four different police departments. And, you know, ended up uh, in Cleveland, a bigger department. It, it doesn't seem to be, I don't know, there's a lot of things going on that I have not been aware of. So, um, I, you know, I find that very fascinating. 
anybody else uh appreciate the the feedback as well uh was anybody else that had a hand up hasn't got to share it all during the second audio clip anybody okay i'll get in uh few of the quick notes that I had, and we should still have time if, if somebody got left out. Um, I think our female caller that just chimed in, I think she had tweeted some, this is some weeks back now, uh, where she was, it was one of the scenes where he went home and he was playing with his, or talking about being around his children. And they play that up in the movie. They got a scene where his child is crawling all uh, over him. I think it's his daughter. And you had said that, hey, you know, I'm a parent. I don't think this child is going to be comfortable around him since he hasn't been there. And I don't think most very young children are going to be comfortable around a total stranger to just be hanging out and oh, great and happy to see them and everything. And then bam, I thought that was extremely telling uh, the portion where he talked about the relationship with his daughter and her, his daughter rejecting him that she would in fact cry whenever he came around. It's like what? Maybe her daughter could recognize a psychopath. Like this guy's crazy. (laughs) Get him out of here. Um, On, uh, the scene, I don't know about this. This sounded kind of Hollywoodish to me. The scene where uh, Petty Officer uh, Mansoor, where he jumps on the grenade to save them and gets the Medal of Honor. That sounds, I mean, I don't, I, I have suspicions of whether or not that's true. Um, the, yeah, that, that, that whole passage where I think Thomas in New York had talked about that, getting a two-year-old to look, I mean... <laughs> I cannot exactly as, as you all have stated, I have no ability to function as a human. I thought that interview as a human, no ability to function as a human. I am just killer psychopath. It's impossible for me to relate. And again, he says in the book, this is not PTSD. This is, I'm getting a lot of uh, feedback. If you can watch the background noise, just mute your line. If you, you know, know you're got some things going on, but um, he said in the book, I enjoyed fighting violence when I was a child. Before I even got there, I had these anger uh, management problems. He says that blatantly in the books that this is not about PTSD. And I thought it was so profound. Uh, Eddie Ralph, that's the name of the guy that killed him, the white guy that killed him, who's also a veteran. He said the same thing. They were talking about his background and they said he loved to fight when he was in school before He got to the, this is just an integral nature of what it means to be white. White culture, white supremacy is about violence and celebrating violence. Um, But the the scene with the child, man, so profound. Talking about white people caring about children, he says one of the things that was incredibly frustrating was her reaction to me. She seemed to cry every time I held her. She wanted mommy. Taya said that she reacted that way to all men. Whenever she heard a male voice, she would cry. Whatever the reason, it hurt me badly. Here I had come all this way and truly loved her, and she rejected me uh, because you're all about killing, not being a dad. Um, The portion from Taya's report, I thought this is another one where she's, this is white pathology. She said, I wanted to count on him, but I couldn't. His team could, and total strangers who happened to be in the military could, but the kids and I certainly could not. It wasn't his fault. He would have been in two places at once if he could have been, but he couldn't. But when he had to choose, he didn't choose us. That and I don't think that is conveyed in the movie at all. If anybody got that sense, you can chime in. I did not get that sense at all of this sort of, you know, 
whatever. <laughs> I'm about killing, yeah, these kids. It's time to go kill these savages. Um, let's see, the part, yeah, the fighting, all of that. I, I mean, that, I was just cracking up laughing. Like, who gets all this massive arrest record? Like, I mean, just put that out. When Tamir Rice was shot and killed in Cleveland, they went in and gave out records of his parents' arrest records. When Tamir Rice was shot and killed. Wow. When, I did not see that. When uh, Michael Brown Jr., after he was shot and killed, they tried first they floated the rumor that he had some perhaps some murder charges as a juvenile, and then they went to get his juvenile records, and they said, no, there's no truth to that no murder charges and you're not going to get access to any uh, quote unquote juvenile records. Even if they exist, you're not going to get access to it. This guy has a massive arrest record that doesn't come out in the film either. Uh, that's one of the things that you have. To, and it's, it's almost presented as a joke, like all oh, the, the, the fun times that we had. Remember when we got, and he wasn't just having bar fights. He was having bar fights with police officers and firefighters and this guy is a hero like yeah this is great and then we went and flipped over cars after we fought i mean this could be a lie i can only underline that this could be a lie but it just would not surprise me uh it just to me it go either way it goes to the nature of white pathology that people uh this is a best-selling book that other large numbers of whites want to read about white people fighting fighting police officers killing people the whole nine that they think that is fantastic top-notch entertainment uh as, as mr thomas i think said teacher told your daughter to uh to read this book that it's great um let's see uh i thought oh yeah them bragging cutting heads off you already mentioned that uh it, yeah we're, we're cutting and i'm sure that they did do that it would not surprise me at all and i also thought the continued referencing to uh the anus genital area uh he says we were kicking butt the tribal leaders saw that we were bad asses uh he's talking about uh, his physical therapist that he kicked my ass around the gym i swear i heard a bullwhip crack over my head i thought that was fascinating whites always seeing themselves as victims as though there's some type of uh tyranny but uh i'll stop there uh any of the other folks uh, have any other comments they want to get in before we wrap up okay um, uh, I just want to ask this real quick question, real quick. But go ahead. Go ahead, ma'am. Can you hear? Oh, oh, I just, I just wanted to um, comment. I did notice that in the movie they had the wedding, you know, but they didn't have the the bachelor party. Is very prominent. They kind of flipped them, mm-hmm. you know, making look like a real family uh, family man. So I think that that was pirate to, to make him into the hero. They they wish he, he really was. I think. Mm-hmm. I started thinking um, about the Jesse Ventura thing. Do you think uh, that could be just uh, uh, what they call that um, damage control? You know, to because uh, they they re- actually read the book and they know that the movie ain't like the book is, and uh, you know, Ventura come out here and just let everybody know, hey, you know, this dude's a liar. You know, uh, to protect their image, uh, just in case that information did come out, other information comes out. Protect whose image? I mean, kind of like how, kind of like how the female juror of uh, 
the Ferguson case. I, got, I, I got a question. Like I, I have a yeah, question. Uh, is his fatal demise in the book and the movie? Uh, it is in the movie. Although I haven't watched that part, but I got to like the last 20 minutes and just was like, I've seen it. Uh, but it is from what I've been told. It is in the movie. And the crazy thing is I cracked up black because I heard this twice this week. People are going to see the movie and they don't know what happened to Chris Kyle, right? So they think this is like some happy they ride off into the sun. So they get to the end of the movie like, oh my God, I can't believe that uh, that had, like somebody even came back, right? They were talking to one of our listeners and they were like, I don't want to tell you what happens at the end of the movie because it ends badly. And she was like, uh, they have his death at the end. She was like, oh my God, how did you <laughs> like, uh, it's been, yeah, people are crazy. That, because that, that's that, that's kind of unusual because normally in movies, you know, the, the, with, with with this type of character characterization, they 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 want to build it up real real big, you know, that sort of thing. And it it it's got this guy to do, do, do all of this, all of this killing, all this 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 woohoo uh, type of stuff, and just to get killed by some some other idiot at a at a shooting range. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, did, did they mention? Did they mention anything about Jerry Jones in the book or the uh, movie? I have, like I said, I didn't get to see the last twenty minutes, but I suspect they probably at least got a photo or something from all that at Texas Stadium. I would be, I'd be kind of surprised if they don't. Yeah, I, I remember vividly when it was in the newspaper that he uh, opened up his. Uh, Huge mega stadium for this this uh, uh, funeral funeral of this this carcass of this this person. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, before we wrap up, any final thoughts, folks? Want to get in again? We are all done. Uh, next week we are all done. This will be our last study session, but. Uh, final quick thought, or is everybody good? Yeah, I want to say uh, Clint Eastwood. He said that movie was an anti-war movie. Who said that? I heard anti-war? that too. He said it was anti-war. <laughs> Clint Eastwood said it was anti-war. Yeah, that's what he said. That's what he said. I, I heard that. I heard that too. I heard that too. Oh, that's a good one. Nobody laughed as he said that. Anti-war movie. That's fascinating. They gave some kind of. Uh, explanation. I, I can't repeat it though. I, I, I there was some kind of explanation behind it oh, that, that was not understandable at all. He said it's a movie about uh, soldiers returning from war and how the war affects them and their families. And that's what it was. That's what it was. Exactly what it was. Yes. I volunteered. To, I volunteered to go over and kill non-white people. So feel sorry for me. You know when I go when when I, when 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 because of all of that trauma that I've induced that that I get local even more than what I actually am you know that sort of thing I guess that's what the idea is feel sorry for me or, or I don't get to kill nobody no more because funny enough like when I read that article like when you read the comments that's what they're saying like how dare they say this guy's a is a murderer he was just you know. This movie's not even about war, you know. It's about him and his family. That's what white people are saying in the comments, and I'm like, really? 
nonsense <laughs> it all is. Anywho, uh, we will be back uh, tomorrow, but we'll be back next Friday to finish off American Snipers. So any final comments? Again, uh, question for Dr. Welsing. I def- the urine thing, I had that. It was a few uh, other passages. Even the child aspect of it, I think, is significant as well. But uh, anything, like if it's a specific passage or um, a specific question about the text, be thinking about that because I definitely want to ask Dr. Welsing uh, about it this coming Sunday. But we will be back tomorrow for the compensatory call-in. Dr. Welsing will be here on Sunday, and uh, we'll have a black male, former uh, NAACP president down in South Carolina. He'll be on the program on Monday. Uh, there was a lot of talk this week about the uh, Friendship Nine in South Carolina and them uh, vacating those convictions. Uh, this was one of the people that the New York Times spoke with uh, who uh, was just right and exact in his commentary that this is just a lot of fooey, uh, <laughs> that we still got a lot of racism going on and white people like to do a lot of pretending that things are great and they have taken every uh, taken care of everything and that is not the case at all. <laughs> he, uh, that was his comment that did get printed in the New York Times. I'm paraphrasing, but that's about the gist of what he said. I uh, thought it would be grand to get him on to get his take about what all has transpired and other things uh, going down, but that'll be Monday. Uh, all programs normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific next week, as well as Monday. Uh, the broadcast tomorrow, as always, is 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And Dr. Welsing, she will be here uh, special time live with the kickoff of the Super Bowl, 6.30 p.m. Eastern, 5.30 p.m. Central, and 3.30 p.m. Pacific Sunday afternoon with Dr. Welsing. Uh, that being said, uh, I hope... Folks got some constructive detail. This has been a fascinating uh, little read. Uh, Lone Survivor, that is uh, another one if you want to pair the two up and and check that out as well. Uh, The homoeroticism is pretty strong in that film as well. Uh, At any rate, uh, again, the weekend, I know folks are are partying and acting a fool and all that stuff. Uh, Sobriety would be best under conditions of war. If you are going to get out and do any investigating or what have you, um, or, or partying, whatever it is, get to one spot and stay there. Uh, you do not want to get behind a wheel and be intoxicated. It's just asking for trouble. Uh, I really would try to minimize my contact period. If you're going to consume any alcohol, certainly not consuming any intoxicants in the presence company of whites. Sobriety would be best under conditions of war. Uh, with that said, if you have any questions, comments, uh, feedback, uh, you can feel free to uh, email untiljustice at gmail.com and we will share. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch everybody in about 24 hours. Uh, creator, help us be patient with other black people, victims of racism. Help us be patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate maximum levels of black self respect at all times in all places each and every time we have contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible context of white supremacy signing out thanks all for tuning in I'm a victim brother a victim. Man, a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm.
Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.